What's up, everybody? This is Rafael Garcia, back for another edition of the MMA Ratings Podcast. Um, thank you for joining me on this Wednesday, May 11th evening. I am waiting on my partner in crime, Schwan Humes, to join me for tonight. Um, but we, as always, will have a lot to talk to you about. Um, we have a lot to talk to you about. We have a pretty big show coming up this weekend in UFC, uh, was it 211 this weekend? And then um, that's, a, that's a huge event. I don't think it's getting quite the attention that it should. I don't think it's getting quite the attention that it should. Um, so I, I, Sean and I are going to talk about that and give us some previews of Previews and breakdowns of the fight fights for this weekend. So yeah, definitely I appreciate you guys taking the time to listen to us today. And if you like our content, please hit the like button down below, share it across your social social media outlets, and let's go ahead and jump right in. We may have a special guest later on tonight too as well. Um, I have not heard back from him yet, but we did speak earlier today, so he's going to try to see what he can do to get on. But the show must go on, so I just want to go ahead and talk about what we got scheduled for tonight. So, let's go ahead and start from there. So, let's go ahead and start from there. Um, first things first, we got UFC 211 on um, Saturday. And at the top of the card, we have... Uh, Stipe Miocic fighting against Junior Dos Santos, which is a rematch of their bout from, what, a year ago, I believe? Um, let me see. When did they fight last? I believe, I believe it was a year ago, or maybe a little bit longer than that. It seems like it was actually sooner. But um, we remember that fight back at... Remember that fight back at UFC 2, uh, what is this? When did they fight last? They fought, at, wow, it's been three years, just about, at UFC on Fox 13, where JDS got the unanimous decision win. Uh, it was a great fight. I remember that that bout. It was a great fight back and forth. Um, action, you know, one of the rare five-round stellar fights that you see in the heavyweight division. But um, it was really a fight that kind of, turned everyone's eye to Stipe if they had not already and pushed him into the position to become the heavyweight champion that he is, is today. Um, since then, he's went on to win four straight fights via TKO, three of which came in the first round. He also had that fifth round TKO finish over Mark Hunt. And he's looking to defend the title for the second time. And he's doing so in Dallas, Texas, against a Stipe Mio, uh, excuse me, against a JDS that 
still really can't get who he is at this point in, in his career. Um, he's had some big fights, and he's really just kind of he's in a different position. Uh, Shawan, you there? Can you hear me? Uh, yes, sir. Cool, cool. Um, your volume is very low, though, so um, you may want to adjust your microphone. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me a little better? Still kind of low, though. Okay, let's see what I can do. Yeah, so, um, but definitely thank you for hopping in and um, joining me, and, you know, as always, we're here to talk about mixed martial arts action this week, and we got a pretty big uh, fight card coming up this weekend. Yeah, it's probably the... Uh... If not the best, well, best card of the year so far. If you're talking about only, only thing to compare to it probably was UFC 205. But as far as up and down the whole entire card from undercard to top of the card, it's all world class matchups with uh, fights that are going to impact the division. Not just good, exciting fights, but fights that are going to determine potential challengers, if not new champions in the divisions. So I mean, man, I totally agree with you. I was actually kind of I wrote a piece about this for um, MMA ratings this week and i looked at the card and i said to myself um why hasn't this card been getting enough promotion i feel like this is the biggest event that they've put together or the most or the deepest event that they've put together since returning to uh new york last year and there's a lot to make from this card from top to bottom i definitely want to start right at the main event and look at this heavyweight bout between uh, Junior Dos Santos and Stipe Miocic. What are your thoughts looking at, at, at this rematch three years in the making? Just about three years. Uh, well, the biggest, the initial thing I have is that I think both people have improved. Um, I think at this point that Stipe had that fight, he, he wasn't as much of a finished prospect, pro finished prospect. He was more, he was an unknown quantity. I think they got that fight to kind of give Junior kind of a set of fight, maybe not a fight that's going to be easy, but a fight that will give him a chance to showcase his skills and put him right back in that title talk. And even though he won that fight, a lot of it actually created a lot more questions for him than it did answers as far as where he stood and what he was capable of. Because I don't think people were expecting Steve to did or to put as much damage on him as he did. They were kind of expecting uh, Junior to kind of blow him out and dominate him. Because that was the kind of fighter who would fight him on his terms, and that did not happen. That was a very, very exhausting back and forth fight, and I really thought uh, it kind of took a little bit out of Junior DeSantis, who had been already been in a series of wars and punishing fights throughout his short time in the UFC. When I think of this fight, you know, I think of JDS and what he's been through recently. Actually, I was just talking about that. The where his career is now, it just seems so different. You know, um, he's traded wins and losses in the for in the last five years. You know, he's um, he's three and three in his last six. As I mentioned, trading wins and losses, and it's interesting to even find him in this main event um, bout, which kind of you know speaks to the disarray, not disarray, but speaks to the lack yeah, of right, disarray. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I, I wanted to be I wanted to be nice, but it speaks to the lack of depth um, in this heavyweight division. So, talk to me about that. Why is he in a position to get a title shot coming off of a three and three stint? I mean, his most recent win is over Ben Rothwell. Well, the main reason is like you said originally, there's there's some disarray in the heavyweight division. There's not many guys who are in a position where they're putting multiple wins together and where they're beating guys with names and they have any sort of cachet. I, I think a lot of this fight is more about it should be an exciting fight. DeSantis comes with a certain amount of excitement based off 
his track record, he's more of a stand-up guy. There won't be a, and he keeps a high pace, so you won't see a lot of a grappling or grinding or clinch tie fight. You'll have a lot of action. You have a lot of blood, and most likely you'll have a fight that's going to end in knockouts. And I think the UFC, the people who own the UFC now, are trying to get fights that it just won't bring in hardcores, but it'll kind of stoke the interest of the casual fan. And hopefully, if it's a good fight, that's going to help jumpstart other cards. Because we all know that when you have a card, bad card, it kind of hurts the next two or three cards down the line. Even if they have good matchups, people are like, I just paid $60 to see two guys lay on each other or see two guys grind up against the cage. I don't know if I want to take a chance because the, every fight to the UFC is a going to be a war. It's going to be the best fight ever. And so when you stop delivering on that, the um, the kind of fan interest moving forward in other cards. So I think they're hoping that this is going to be the kind of card that kickstarts off their summertime and really brings in a lot of fans and helps push them, push their Fox cards and their, more importantly, their pay-per-view cards to uh, higher buy rates by giving people a fight that they can relate to, the kind of fight that the fans want, the casual fans want. But um, the division so then, the only people who are putting wins together is Francis Ngannou and Derek Lewis. And neither one of them has really beaten anybody that says that they should be in line for a title shot. So you can't use those guys. Who else do you have? Roy Nelson? I mean, Kane, Kane Velasquez has a, have won a fight recently, but um, Travis Brown. I mean, Andre Larsky has been getting knocked out left and right. Mauricio Verdum hasn't really been active, and he's not always known to have the most exciting fights. Plus, he's already gotten knocked out by the champ in one round. So what other options do you have at heavyweight? Who else can you bring in there who has any sort of cachet, has an exciting style, and is coming off of a win? And the most important thing is Junior beat Ben Rothwell, who was probably a step or two away from a title shot himself. So that gives him a little bit of cachet because Ben Rothwell was considered a guy who was maybe who should who should, who should have been a heavyweight contender for the title or should have been challenging next with one one more fight. And so Junior DeSantis beat him. So essentially they're giving him all of Rothwell's momentum and putting him in the position that Rothwell would have been in had he beaten DeSantis himself. What's interesting is I, I looked at the I'm looking at the um heavyweight rankings, you know, the, that the UFC has right now. And Ben Rothwell isn't even in the top 15. You know, and you said that he's... Yeah, a, I mean, he... Like he, like he a lot, I think, I, I want to say a lot of his, his the, the drop in his ranking had to do with his loss to DeSantos. Because mm -hmm. at that point, I think he won three or four fights in a row, and he had won them all by knockout. Knockout, no, he, he, had, some, he had submissions and knockout. So he was pretty much being groomed to be the next title challenger. I don't know that the UFC was happy about that. But th there was a, a groundswell of support saying that he was going to be the next challenger. When, when they announced the fight with DeSantos, I didn't think it was a good idea. I said on Twitter, I said to anybody who would listen, I think it's a bad matchup. I think it's a bad fight. Rothwell is a step away from a title fight. And they're putting him putting him in with a guy who who was, you know, 500 at best over the past couple of years. Yeah, he's a name, but he's a guy who hasn't been producing. So you're going to risk your winning streak and you're going to risk your momentum against a guy who's still dangerous and who has the skill set well against your skill set or doesn't match up well with your skill set, you're going to take that risk. And uh, just, and Rothwell felt it was worth the risk, and he lost that fight. And with it, he lost his ranking and any momentum and any chance he had to be considered for a title fight. So, I mean, I'm trying to see, you know, you asked a pretty interesting question, you know, who else could you put here? I see, you know, their top five is Verdun, Velasquez, over, Velasquez, excuse me, Overeem, JDS, and then Gano. That's the top five. They have Derek Lewis, Mark Hunt, 
Arlovsky, Travis Brown, and Alexander Volkov rounding out the top 10. I mean, Nganu and Lewis, you know, they're new faces, so maybe I could see them making that fight just for, you know, shits and giggles. But none of these heavyweight potential bouts, like if you took JDS out of this fight, and even if you put any of these other men in there, I mean, maybe the rematch with Werdum would be interesting to me to see him kind of like, you know, the fight more smarter or fight more smartly than he did the first time around. But this has always been my issue with heavyweight MMA. I just don't find it compelling. And I think that this fight kind of proves that point. Yeah, it, it's not very compelling. But you, like I said, you couldn't, it's like when people were saying they wanted Jose Aldo to rematch Conor McGregor. How do you rematch a guy who got blown out in the first round or Eddie Alvarez? How do you demand a rematch when you essentially got put out in the first round? It's very hard. It wasn't like it was, it was a fight that was back and forth and had any time frame going over it. Verdun got stopped. He got stopped, and it was a decisive win. There wasn't any question marks about it. I mean, you could say that he played, he fought stupid and he ran into shots, but with his track record and him being a veteran, that's almost inexcusable. You know, it, it's just inexcusable for that to happen. I mean, and he's already beat Overeem, so you can't have that rematch. He beat Overeem very recently. Overeem hasn't had a chance to put anything together. Verdun hasn't done anything really impressive during his time since his loss to Stipe either. So, I mean, it's like, what, what else can you really do? You know, and what, and who else has enough cachet and has enough of a history where you can kind of get fans excited, kind of get the media excited about the fight? I mean, Derek Lewis would be an exciting fight with Stipe, but people would wonder, like, you know, why are you putting this guy in this fight? Who is he beating that justifies him being in this spot? And Ganu's level of competition has been, you know, average at best who is he being that says that he should be in the spot either so there's no way you could justify you can at least justify junior because junior beat the guy who was on like a three or four or five win streak and he did so and he made it he made it look fairly easy you know and plus junior has a style these guys already have history they've already fought junior's already beaten the champ so you have a storyline and the fight was very exciting it was one of the best fights of the year at the time so it, it kind of just sets up in his favor and you know it's an exciting matchup it's a guy who has some name value and a guy with an exciting and two guys whose style match up very well as far as producing an exciting fight. So it's like, it was a layup for the UFC. That's the only, that's the only route they could go where it would make some kind of sense. And they could be guaranteed to have some kind of sustained action. that would draw more fans in or give a kickstart to their fan base. Cause like I said before, a bad fight can really upset any momentum you have for any given, for any given combat sport. You can't have bad fights, bad fights, especially when they're the, world championship fights or they're the main event fights, those 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 bad performances carry over to other events. And you can't you just can't have stuff like that. So from that from that perspective, this is the best fight that could be made. And also, you know, Junior does have a style that says he can compete with Stipe, he can compete with Stipe and possibly beat him. You know, I've seen improvements in Stipe, but I'm not saying that he's unbeatable or untouchable given the way he fights against someone like DeSantos. And DeSantos, even though he has the win over Stipe, he's still shown enough flaws as far as the punishment he's taken, the amount of rounds he's been in, and even some of the just technical flaws he has in his game that says that with a couple adjustments, Stipe could beat him. But either way, you're guaranteed a certain kind of fight, a certain kind of pace, a certain amount of action. And that's what, what they're really after. They're trying to make up that money they lost in buying the UFC. And the only way you make that up is by having cards that get people to res- respond get people to put their money down, not just for that card, but for the next card moving forward. So what do you think needs to happen for this to be the type of main event that gets people 
I'm, and I don't want to say excited for the, for MMA and UFC again, but I feel like you know they're coming off of a. I don't want to say a low because they've had cards over the last few weeks, but um, what I think that this is kind of the this is the card on paper that can get people excited for the second half of the year. What needs to happen in Saturday's main event for that to go down? Um, it needs to be a high action fight. I mean. Both guys are capable of being more technical and more strategical and patient in how they fight. But for the fight to be the kind of fight that the UFC wants, the kind of fight that's going to get the fans pumped up and kind of give them some momentum moving forward, it's got to be about. It's got to be essentially what they a better, a more technical version of what they had when they fought two years ago. It's got to be that exciting. It's got to have that kind of level of contact. It's got to have that kind of sustained action. It can't be just two guys poking and jabbing and trying to work the angles and play defense. Even if that's smart, that would be great for Stipe, it'd be great for De Santos, but it would not be great for the UFC. As we've discussed before in other shows, fighting smart or fighting discipline, that's great for you as a fighter, and that's your job as a fighter. But for the UFC, people don't pay to see discipline performances. People don't pay to see technical mastery unless it results in some kind of violence, some kind of mayhem, someone getting knocked out, someone getting beaten up. There's nothing worse for a fight promotion to have a guy who's so technical and slick that the other guy can't do anything against him, but for all the work he's doing, he can't do any damage. He's, he's, there's, you never have the sense that he's going to finish a guy or stop a guy. That's the worst thing for any fight promotion. So they needed to be technical. They needed to be sharp, but they need the fight to have sustained action and a lot of it. And luckily, these guys' styles match up in a manner that's pretty much guaranteed for that to happen. Who do you um so break down the fight? How do you see the bout going? Well, the biggest issue I have with the with the fight, a lot of people were picking Junior because of what he did with Ben Rothwell. And and I understand that perspective. But the thing about Ben Rothwell is Ben Rothwell is not a boxer. He's not particularly light on his feet. He's not particularly great with his hands, you know, in the truest sense at boxing range, throwing combinations, setting up his strikes. He's not even particularly great defensively when it comes to boxing. So a lot of people are saying Junior's back and he's made these improvements in his footwork and his timing and, and the ability to throw combination. He's being more technical as a boxer. And I'm not saying that's not true. People I know at his gym say that's true. But when you're fighting a guy like Ben Rothwell, who doesn't have a boxing background and doesn't have a natural, natural preference or a proclivity for boxing, you're going to look a lot better against him than you are against somebody else who has an understanding of the techniques, of the stances, of the positions, of the defense, of the counters, in, in the whole, in the whole art is a, in the whole art. Rothwell is the kind of guy who tries to pressure you. He tries to tie you up, use his physicality to beat you up and break you down. He's not a guy who throws combinations. He's not a guy who slips and rolls punches and throws crisp counter punches or throws a wide array of punches. He's essentially a guy who tries to walk you down, take what you have, block it, cover up get his hands on you and essentially take over from there. He's not, he's, he's not effective at a boxing range. And all Junior did was work, come inside and outside on angles. He didn't start backing up straight in straight lines like he used to. Because for a long period of time, the biggest hole in Junior's game was that he backed up in straight lines and he'd force himself to the fence where you could cut him off and beat him up. You could clinch up with him, wear him down, and just slowly chop him down on the inside, inside shots, or punch into clinches and then wear him out and, and make him defend the strikes and the takedowns. Now he seemed to address that a little bit better where when he gets close to the fence, instead of hitting the fence and trying to circle off, he'll start circling before he hits the fence. Instead of moving back in a straight line, he comes in and he exits on ankles. 
he starts setting, he's putting his punches together more now, and he's being a little bit more fluid in how he throws his shots. But once again, he's doing it against a guy who can't box. So there's going to be certain openings that are going to exist that won't be against a guy who's got better hands, better stance, and a better sense of how to defend and counter the punches that are being thrown towards him. Ben Rothwell's never been that kind of guy. Every fight he's been at, when a guy's been able to strike with him at range, he's essentially gotten kind of touched up. It's just his chin, his forward pressure, and his physicality usually carries him through. But once those, th- once those things aren't a factor, the holes in his striking become very, very apparent. Look at the Overeem fight. He was getting touched up. But then eventually he just kept pressing, and Overeem's footwork fell underneath Ben Rothwell's pressure and physicality. Josh Barnett tried to come right in on him. Josh Barnett isn't isn't a boxer. He doesn't have that type of skill. So he kind of fought Barnett. He fought Rothwell exactly where he wanted to be, where he wanted to fight him at. Matt Mitrione went for a takedown. He could have stayed at range and kind of boxed with him a little, kickboxed with him, but he didn't do that either. He panicked down once again going into the range that Rothwell is effective with. Junior DeSantis was never going to try and take him down. Junior DeSantis was never going to get in clinches with him and work with him. Junior DeSantos was never going to stand in front of him in exchange. He was always going to use his speed advantage and hand, hand speed and foot speed and essentially outbox him. And outboxing a guy who can't box really isn't all that impressive. So was, even though I saw the improvements, I can't really say how sharp they are or how developed they are because he showed improvements against a guy who has little to no skill in a particular area. It's like you submitting a guy who can't really grapple. I mean, are you really proud about submitting a guy who doesn't know how to grapple in the first place, that's not much of an improvement. That's not, that doesn't say anything about your skill. It's a huge hole in that person's game. So Junior essentially outboxed the guy for three rounds, five rounds, I forget, but he outboxed, he outboxed the guy who can't box. That's not hard to do. Anybody can outbox the guy who can't box, especially when you have a background in actual boxing. So when you look, I mean, you definitely broke it down very well from an um, analytical point of view, so I, I definitely uh, appreciate that. I um. Are you willing to put a put a like put a pick out there? Um, I honestly, honestly, I think Stipe is going to win this. I, I see how Stipe could could lose because Stipe likes the pressure. And defensively, when he's standing, when he's countering, and he's kind of moving his feet and turning, turning guys and making them come to him, his defense is a little sharper. His defense is a little sharper. But when he's actually trying to get his offense off, his defense to me isn't as sharp as it should be. When he's pressing a guy. He's kind of there to be hit. He'll hit guys, but he'll be he's there to be hit. Really have your defense down. You're usually you can usually get your offense off and you can you can marry everything. You can marry your defense with your offense with your counters. From what I've seen from Steve A, consistently, he's not able to do that. In spots he's done it, but consistently from round to round, beginning to round to end to round, beginning to fight to end to fight, he hasn't consistently build, been able to get his offense off and be defensively responsible at the same time. So if he's gonna be pressuring DeSantos, he's going to get to DeSantos because DeSantos isn't super clean with his defense either. But DeSantos, in my opinion, is probably the heavier hitter and has the faster feet and faster hands. So if it becomes down to a matter of who's got who's a better athlete, who can throw more and who can throw more explosively, DeSantos is going to win that battle. But if Stipe is going to actually use his jab, turn DeSantos, kind of use feints, turn him from side to side, move from, move from one direction to another, that'll offset any physical advantages Junior has, and that'll allow him to counter him aggressively and set him up for those takedown attempts, which he doesn't need to score. He doesn't need to score the takedown attempts. The takedowns can be used to push him to the fence. The takedowns can be used to force Junior to defend, 
and take some of that explosiveness out of his legs and his feet, that those takedown offense, takedown offense can be used for Junior to bring him in and allow Stipe to get to his body or work, do work on the inside. But the main thing Stipe's got to do is he's got to attack him from multiple ranges, do some kicks as well, just to offset the, the hand speed and the explosive athleticism advantage that Junior has. But essentially, all he's got to do is feint him, turn him, and stick with his jab. And if he can do those things, he's going to be able to force Junior to be over-aggressive, and he can walk him into counters. Because Junior's there to be countered on his entries and his exits. But you have to be disciplined enough to not, to A, punch with Junior when he's punching, and B, not keep trying to pressure him and run right into all his power. I think Stipe's become a more disciplined fighter. I think he's become more seasoned. And as a result, I think he's going to fight even more intelligently than he did the first fight. The first fight, he had the right game plan and the right structure, but his boxing skills weren't quite there, in my opinion. Two years later, his boxing has gotten a lot cleaner. His counters, especially off the back foot, that right hand off the back foot is the best you'll see in MMA. And I think those little small adjustments are going to be the difference. If he lets Junior come to him and he's willing to punch with him and aggressively counter, I think he's going to outwork Junior. I think he's going to stop him. Junior's taken a lot of abuse over the past couple of years. Those three fights with Kane were just savage beating. You know, the he, the one fight he won, but the other two were just savage beatings. And they weren't just one or two round beatings. They were like three, four, five round beatings. That takes a lot out of you. The fight with Stipe was a huge war. That takes a lot out of you. The fight with Hunt had a lot of heavy contact in it. That takes a lot out of you. That catches up to you at some point. And I think that Stipe is the fresher guy. I think physically he's taking less damage and I think he's improved in more areas and now he's more capable of executing a game plan to win a fight I think Junior's got the athleticism to win I think he's got the technique to win but I don't know that he has as much of a margin of error because of all the damage and all the miles he's racked up on his body fighting in such one-sided beatings and in such pitch battles even in the fights that, he, that were competitive that he won so I really think it's a matter of activity mileage and the ability to recover from damage. I don't think that Junior's, um, Junior has it anymore. I don't think he has it as, as much as he's going to need it in this fight. And that fight with Ben Rothwell didn't show me anything. I have no idea what Junior's chin is like now or his recovery is like because he didn't take really any shots. Rothwell couldn't do anything with him. But I know that Kane beat the crap out of him, and I know that Overeem iced him pretty bad too. So I just don't think he's got the recovery that if um, Stipe can hit him with the right shots and put some volume on him off the counters, I think he's going to stop him probably probably inside of five, maybe late fourth round, maybe third round. Could be as early as one, but I'm going to say it's later in the fight around third or fourth round. So I, I, I always love your um, your breakdowns, and you definitely do a good job of going in-depth. I definitely want to make sure we get Stipe's name right because I don't want him or anyone else coming after us for mispronouncing him as Stipe, so let's make sure that we uh, not get knocked out because I don't want him knocking on my door. I know you don't want him knocking on yours. <laughs> Yeah, I've had people like, they're like, why do you keep saying his name wrong? And I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm trying my best to get it straight. <laughs> yeah, I know you yeah. get into it and you get and you get down and uh, dirty into the weeds. But I definitely, man, I, I don't, I, I would hate part to have is, him uh, show up and he, um, take us both out at the same time. He's not going to knock on your door. You're far away. I'm in Texas. He, he yep. can actually show up my place and I can have those kind of problems. <laughs> You're right there. He can show up to your <laughs> house. Dallas. It's like a couple hour drive. It's like three or four hour drive. He can, he show, can show up to your house right now. Yeah, so if the bell rings and I, I go to answer it, just tell everybody I love the fans and I, I did it for them. 
<laughs> to, I, I definitely get it. Uh, but no, so I agree with you when you talk about JDS and talk about the damage that he's taken, man. Like, I can't remember the last time he's taken a loss and it hasn't looked like brutal. Um, like I'm looking at his win loss record and you know the loss to Kane, the loss to uh, Alistair Overeem was a brutal knockout. Kane Velasquez was ugly. Um, both times is brutal fights. Both times, even the fight with Mark Hunt and the win over Stipe Miocic didn't go smoothly per se. So it's kind of like it's like at some point in time you gotta kind of wait. You kind of you, you gotta kind of look at what's going on with a, a, a fighter's career. And it's funny because I'm actually working on a piece about Matt Hughes and Chuck Liddell potentially um, coming out of, out of out of retirement and. At some point in time, someone in the guy's corner needs to say enough is enough. And I think JDS is headed for that that, that point. Yeah, I, I won't say he's totally right at that point, but when he fought, like when he had the comeback fights against Kane, I was kind of like, I don't know that you recovered from that first beating. You know, you didn't. He didn't take any extended time off. He he didn't he didn't re- retool his game. He kind of just kept doing what he's always doing. And even though I've seen improvements, I saw improvements in the St- the Stipe fight. I saw improvements in the Rothwell fight. The fact is, no matter how much of a rest you take, that damage doesn't really go away. And like you said, even in the wins he's had, it's been these back-and-forth fights. Like, you could tell he's been in a fight. He hasn't really had any easy wins. I mean, Rothwell was probably the first easy win he's had in years. So it's like it's hard for me to just say that this guy, had his chin is still there, his, still, his recovery is still there, when I know he's been stopped multiple times with it in the, you know, in the recent, recent past. And he's been in tough fights. Even the fights he's won have required him to take huge shots and huge amounts of punishment. He hasn't had any short fights. The Stipe fight was five rounds. The, the fight with Overeem was short, but that was a KO. Was was like three and four rounds. It was just extended punishment. And not just the punishment he's absorbing, it's the punishment he's dishing out. That still takes a toll on your body when you're having to work that hard at that sort of pace. So it's like he's made these improvements, but the question is, did he make them too late? Because if he made these improvements a couple years ago, it protects him from some of the abuse he's taken in those losses. It keeps him from getting knocked out. It keeps him from being exposed to that kind of damage. But he's made them so late in the game, I don't know that he has that margin of error. Kind of like I say with Gray Maynard. If Gray Maynard made those changes three years ago, he'd still be a top-ranked contender, but he waited too long. So now his margin of error is so small, you hit him with a good shot, that might be it for him, even though he's improved technically as a fighter. So I see the improvements in JDS, but I don't know that he has the chin or the recuperative abilities. Like everybody does to recover against a guy who's known for his power, a guy who hits pretty hard, and a guy who's known for putting on a lot of volume when he gets a guy hurt. You know, I, and I still don't know how his chin is because Rothwell barely touched him. So I have no idea what he can recover from. I have no idea what he can take because I haven't seen him take anything in a while. But the last thing I saw him take was him getting knocked out by Overeem. So I have to wonder, is that margin of error there? Will his chin hold up if he has to take a couple clean, hard shots? I know his heart's there. I know his will is there. But is his body still able to do that? He's a good enough athlete that he can just smoke 90% of the heavyweights just based on athleticism alone. But he's not going he's, he's to impress Stipe. Excuse me. He's already seen it. He already has an idea of how hard he hits. He's not going to catch him off guard with his speed and power. He's dealing with a guy who's already seen him at his seen him at his best or close to it. So he doesn't have that advantage anymore. Now it's going to come down to game planning, execution, and technique. And we know Stipe can come back from getting hurt. We know Stipe can come back from a bad spot. We know he can respond to pressure. We don't know that about JDS anymore. We haven't had we haven't seen him deal with it well. 
So what do you think's next when this fight is over? Um, what do you think's next since you've picked uh, Stipe to, to get the win? What do you think will be next for both men uh, in the future? Uh, if Stipe wins, I, I mean, I think he's going to win, but I can't guarantee he's going to. If he wins, it's going to be a big boon for him because that means he's probably beat three of the most dominant heavyweights in heavyweight MMA history back to back to back, beating Verdum, beating Overeem. And beating JDS is is even at this stage is no small feat, and and he'd be the first guy to def- he'd break the record for title defenses as a UFC heavyweight. So even at this stage of his title his title reign, he'd have to be considered one of the better heavyweights in mixed martial arts automatically, given who's on his resume and the fact that he's he would have broken a record that some of the best heavyweights in in UFC history and MMA history haven't been able to break. That, that would put him in a rare echelon. I would think that if he wins, he maybe if Derek Lewis wins his next fight, they'd be lining him up for Derek Lewis. Because like, like I said, they don't have a lot of fresh blood at the uh, at the top at the heavyweight division. If Junior DeSantis will win, that kind of resets everything because there's guys who've already beat him who you could get him in rematches. You could rematch him with Stipe if the fight's competitive. You could rematch him with Overeem because Overeem has a win over him. There's a lot of other that opens up a lot more doors than a win by Stipe. A win by Stipe, you know, he still has all those wins over all the next ten contenders except for Nganu and Lewis. So those are pretty much the only two directions you can go with them. It's as far as exciting matchups and matchups that that draw interest. JDS wins that opens up a whole a whole bunch of rematches and other um, matchups for the entire heavyweight division, including Stipe himself. Who would you rather see them face next? Um, depending on how the fight goes, I, 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 w- I could see if, if it, regardless of who wins or loses, I could see one of them being, you know, I guess the loser. I could see them facing maybe an Nganu or Derek Lewis to kind of see if he's really ready for that final step up. I know he's supposed to be fighting. I think he's supposed to be fighting Mark Hunt. But at this stage, Mark Hunt's not the litmus test that you would like him to be anymore, especially now that his chin isn't what it used to be. But a fight against a win over JDS or a win over Stipe, even coming off a loss in his career, I don't know that Ngannou is quite ready for it because he hasn't faced any resistance whatsoever. But I think Lewis might be ready for a fight like that. And I think whether I think the, the loser of the fight would be a good fight for him because it'd be that final step up to really see where he stands and see if he's ready for that for that next step. Hmm. So, hmm, what do you uh, think about the the, U- the UFC heavyweight division long term? Um, you know, we have what we have half a year, a year left. How many times do you think the title is defended between now and then? And who do you think are fe- if you had to pick four guys that you think would be featured in these heavyweight fights? Who do you think who who would who would they go to? Uh, the four guys, the only ones I could think of as it stands right now. Um, if Stipe wins. They could go over Verdum. Eventually, uh, Derek Lewis would be third on the list, and then they could have Nganu fourth. Nganu would have to be the fourth option because he's still so raw. Um, if JDS wins, Overeem's right back in that, so that'd be Overeem, Verdum, Kane, and Derek Lewis would be the four. The only reason I put Nganu in there is because if somehow Stevie got through the other three, by that time, Nganu would have enough seasoning and exposure to probably put him into a title fight because they don't want to rush him into that because he's such a good prospect. 
But the thing about it is all the guys they have who are up for a title fight, they're all older guys. It's almost like the light heavyweight division. You don't have any – you have very little – very few young up-and-coming guys who are finding out their identity and on their way up. Overeem's on the decline. Cain Velasquez on the decline. Fabricio Verdum on the decline. To me, uh, Junior DeSantos, to a degree, is on the decline. I mean, there's not a lot of young guys in there for you to build excitement for. It's all fights you've already seen or fights you already feel that the champion, whoever it may be, could win easily because none of those guys are having standout performances anymore. Nobody knows what they have because they don't perform regularly. I mean, it'd be nice if Daniel Cormier was a heavyweight. I mean, he dropped heavyweight so he wouldn't have to fight Kane, but Kane hasn't fought in like consistently in like three or four years. So he dropped to light heavyweight for no reason because there was no chance he was going to fight Kane because Kane can't stay, stay healthy. If John Jones moved up, that would help, you know. But, but as the heavyweight division stands right now, they don't have enough depth. They have about four guys who could be considered for a title fight. And that's about it. And all four guys are over 30 and on their closer on the way out than they are to on their way into the heavyweight division. Well, you know, that's, that's definitely some, some damn good analysis there, man. I can, I can agree with you on a lot of that there. I definitely appreciate what you had to say in that area. Um, I want to look at the Coleman event next, man. We have an important, very important fight there with two very violent and very tough women in Joanna Jacek and Jessica Andrade fighting for the strawweight, women's strawweight title. Um, I'm probably more excited for this fight than I am for the for the main event because you know it's going to be two two people coming straight ahead intention of stopping um break this fight down for me and t tell me what you see here well the best thing about this fight is it's two people on the upswing any heavyweight matchup nowadays is one person who's on the upswing and one person who's most likely on the downswing having lost one or two if not three fights in a row in this case you have andrage who's on a hot streak having beaten hill having beat jessica former title challenger and former invicta adam weight champion panay and having beaten um, top-ranked strawweight Joanne Jojo Calderwood. So she's coming off of three major wins in division. And in each each win, she's passed each, te each test as far as the skill set and the physical tools that the opponent had in facing her. And she's looked more impressive in every single fight. You know, she's just been, to me, she's been one of the best champions the UFC's had. She stays active and... Her fights, even if they're competitive or they go to full fight rounds, it's clear wins by her. It's dominance. She and she's beaten the very best the division has to offer. And nobody's really been able to put her in danger for more than, you know, maybe a half a round, a couple minutes out of the round, maybe a full round. They haven't been able to really do anything with her. So she's shown herself to be a step above the rest of the division, a, a truly dominant champ. And I, I routinely refer to her as one of the top pound for pound fighters because of her activity and her dominance. So that's what makes it exciting because you have two people who seem to be at the peak of their powers, who are walking through all the opposition and they're coming, who seem to be unstoppable at, at this weight class. And now they're going to fight each other for or the ultimate supremacy at that weight class. So that fight, just on those merits, is more exciting than the heavyweight division fight because you, you, you know what you're getting. You know both people can take a shot. You know both can fight. And you know both are a step above everybody else in the division. Um, I'm definitely looking forward to this fight too as well, man. I definitely agree with you on that. It's two people who are on the upswing. And I think that Joanna Jacek is like on the cusp of becoming a big star for this promotion. Ever since she's won the title, she's really 
grown into someone that is not only interesting in a cage, but it's also, you know, she's funny. She has um, interesting interviews when people talk to her outside the cage. So she's someone that can grow into a personality. She's definitely, she's speaks very, she speaks English very well. And, you know, I hate to say that, but that's very important. Um, that's very important to someone becoming a crossover star. She's doing everything and she's doing everything the right way. She's taking all the fights that are offered to her, fighting tough challenges, fighting rematches. Um, she's staying so active and it's kind of like she's a model for all of these other UFC champions that are, or all these other champions and all these other people who are trying to become champions, in, in my opinion. Well, she gets it. Unlike a lot of them who just want to fight or just want to do their business, that's very important. <laughs> Winning is important. How you perform is important. But what also is important is establishing a relationship between you and the fans. Because the fans, regardless of how good you are, if the fans aren't invested, and I don't mean they have to be fans of yours, they could hate you. Hating you is an investment too. But whether they hate you or love you, there has to be a reaction in the fans outside of your fight. And they have to care about you as an individual, whether they want to see you get beat up or they want to see you do well, they have to care. And if you don't have, if you haven't invested in the fans, they won't invest in you. And that's going to show in your pay-per-views. That's going to show in your clicks on your interviews. And when you're on countdowns, the UFC, especially now that they're run by WMEME, they pay attention to all that stuff. They want to know who's going to give them the biggest bang for their buck, not just skill-wise, not just by what they do in the cage, but what they do outside the cage. And she gets that. She's been doing that. And that's that's the secret. Ronda Rousey used to say, everybody wants my money and wants my fame. Nobody wants to do the publicity work I do. I do. Conor McGregor said the same thing. Nobody wants to go from country to country on a 32-city tour to promote a fight and interrupt their training. They But they want to get paid like I do. They don't want to work like I do. And Joanna's to do the work on the outside and the inside. And one of the biggest things that impresses me on the inside is her going to ATT and working with Mike Brown, who I think is one of the best coaches in MMA history. That guy really understands the sport. He understands his fighters. He understands what he understands how to improve people and how to connect with people on a personal level to motivate them to do the things they need to do to improve. And she didn't wait till she lost a step. She didn't wait until she lost to make a change. She felt like she was plateauing where she was. And she took the next step to get better training, more specific training, and address holes in her game before she started slipping, before she fell off. And most fighters don't do that. They keep doing whatever they're doing until it stops working. And she's already figuring, like, I already know what people are going to attack. I know where I'm strong. I know how people are going to attack me. I need to start addressing those weaknesses ASAP. And she took whatever measure she had to to address those weaknesses. And to me, that's that's the sign of a champion. You don't wait till people catch up to you. You don't wait till you start falling behind. You're always trying to find an edge. You're always trying to get one step ahead of people. That's what the best people in the world are anything, business, music, combat sports, regular sports, that's what they do. And that's what she did. And that's that's what I think has put her in such a prime position as it stands right now. I've been listening to um, a lot of commentary about uh, Joanna Jacek, and people are asking questions on whether or not she's taking too much damage. She's been in a lot of long fights from recently, you know, even, you know, back to the, you know, the fight, the, even the fights that she's won, the, the fight against Panay and, and Calderwood, she looked very good um, in. But the wins against Gadelia, you know, Carolina Kowalskiewicz didn't go away um, easily. Jessica Andrade is not going to go away easily. It, are we headed towards a situation where we see a, uh, a Joanna champion that looks a lot like JDS does at this point in his career? Um, I wouldn't go that far because unlike unlike JDS, she's she never had the limits in her footwork. 
She's always been able to do lateral movement. She's been excellent against about not backing herself off to the cage. And unlike JDS, when he gets back to the cage, he just starts trying to punch his way off and his defense falls all apart and guys start punching him off and initiating clinches because of her kickboxing background. Um, Joanna is more than willing to initiate a clinch and then tie up with somebody, punish them with knees and elbows, turn them into the cage and go to work. She did that to Claudia. And a lot of people, because they're so fearful of her clinch and so fearful of her striking in the open cage, when they get her to the cage or when they get in those positions, they're not even trying to strike with her. They're trying to do everything in their power to get her down and to out-wrestle her or to finish her because they know what a huge skill gap there is between them and herself as far as the striking goes. There, it's like I know we say Anderson Silva was a great striker. Anderson Silva had a lot of excellent – he was a great counter-striker. He had excellent timing. He had excellent build. He had an excellent strategy towards fighting. Joanna is so much better a technical striker than almost everybody in the division. It's not even close. You know, I mean, it's like the gap between uh, Valentina and the rest of the Bantamweight division. When you see her strike and see her counters, it's like the other girls don't even belong in the same cage with her when it comes to throwing technique, striking techniques. You know, that's the kind of get like the gap between Valentina and Amanda Nunes. They look like a different class of striker. That's essentially what we're having here. You have a legitimate world-class striker who knows how to move in and out, who knows how to use feints, who knows how to put combinations together, who knows how to fight in the pocket and fight at range, who can hit you with the jab and throw the right hand or hit you with the counter knee or chop you with leg kicks or chop you with front kicks and snap kicks to the body. There's not anything in striking that anybody in the division can ha- can do to her on a technical basis. You know, she's just that far. Claudia Gadelia is a very good striker. And she had a lot of problems with Joanna, especially late when Joanna started pouring on the volume. And most people aren't in Claudia's level either. With JDS, JDS took a lot of punishment because of the holes in his game. Joanna's taking shots, but she's not taking those kind of shots. And it's not one-way traffic. In certain fights with JDS, it was one. It was him taking 15 shots for every two shots he would land. And he'd be taking a lot of short shots and in-between shots and big shots. She doesn't take that kind of punishment. She gets hit, but she's not getting hit the way her opponents want her to get hit. Otherwise, she'd be getting dropped more. She'd be getting stunned more. She'd be getting trapped on cages and having people put four, five, six shots together on her. You don't really see that happen. She gets caught in exchanges, but anytime you're striking with somebody and you throw a punch... The best time to hit somebody is when they're throwing. So if you're willing to throw with her, you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna land shots. That that's that's an automatic. But she actually has the length and the footwork and the skill set to avoid those if she wants to. She makes it a point to put out a lot of volume. If she chooses just a jab, leg kick, front kick, throw the lead right hand, throw counter knees, and tie you up when you come in on the inside, she won't be touched. When she fought Carolina, she didn't get hit a lot until Carolina landed uh, that one right hand and then kind of lit into her. But other than that, she was outclassing her. It was a very one-sided fight, and she was not getting hit nearly as much as people think she was. And she wasn't getting hit clean as much as people think she is. So my, I do like you, I do have concerns about that because I've seen her get hit a little bit, and she's been fighting so many five-round fights, and they've been very physical and very active. But I still believe that technically, in regards to her ability to counter, which is going to make people hesitate to attack, and her actual defense, she's still good enough that she shouldn't be getting up by people in stand-up exchanges. The question with Andrade is Andrade is so big and so physical and throws so much volume and is so willing to come forward on you because she has that huge strength and size advantage that people are concerned that Joanna's going to get caught because she likes to put on volume. 
So you're gonna have a volume puncher against another volume puncher who's not afraid to let her hands go, which means that she's gonna get more than likely Joanna's gonna get hit more than she's comfortable with getting hit or more than she's gotten hit in her time in the UFC. But as far as a technical manner and, and, and from that point, there's not there it's not even close between her and Andrade. The level of craft in the striking is so lopsided technically, it's embarrassing. It's just a matter of can Andrade walk through the fire? Can Andrade take the punishment round after round to get to Joanna? Or can she just bull right through and start blasting her and put her on the defensive and overwhelm her? Because the longer the fight goes, the more it goes in Joanna's favor because Andrade doesn't have the skill set to actually match her. And I've actually done a lot of work. The reason I can say this, Andrade, because I've actually written a lot of pieces. I've written three pieces of Andrade. When she fought Hill, I wrote two pieces for MMA ratings. And recently, I fought, I wrote a two-part piece regarding her for severe MMA that came out this week. So I've done a lot of tape study on Andrade. She's not a bad fighter, but a lot of her success is based off of the fact that she is so much stronger. She hits so much harder, and she's so relentless in her pressure, pressure towards the girl she's fighting. Because even if they can hurt her, even if they hit her, she knows that once she gets her hands on him, she can she can manhandle him. She can press him up against the cage. She can chop him half a body shot. She can throw him all around the cage. She knows she can do that, so she's willing to take a couple shots. But against somebody like Joanna, that's not going to be easy to do because Joanna's not going to be easily pressured. She knows how to pick her spot. She knows how to pivot. She knows how to spin off the cage. Defensively, she's the best striker in division, and offensively, she's the best striker in division. She has all the tools and she knows when and how to use them. Unlike somebody like Angela Hill, who's very gifted athletically and who's very skilled, but that's two different classes of strikers. The openings that are there against Hill won't be there against Joanna. And, and that's a difference that a lot of people aren't paying attention to. Technique matters, skill matters, experience matters. And in those, in those aspects, the gap between her and Andrade is just humongous. The only thing that the question is, can she handle the physicality? Can she handle the power? Can she handle that aggression? Because Adraja is going to come after her harder than anybody else has ever come after her before. Do you? What do you? What is your? What is your perceived outcome of this fight? Um, I think a lot of people are counting Andrade out, um, and I'm not willing to do so. She hits hard. Um, I would be concerned about her gas tank. Uh, because she does go hard and she goes fast, and you, you know, we Joanna is the type of fighter that paces herself, and you see the um, ability she has to kind of put it on a fighter from rounds three to five. How do you break down this fight, and what do you see happening? The the thing about it, the thing about Andrade is this: Andrade fought a bantamweight. Everybody knows this. In her fights against people who were on a lower level of athleticism, she crushed them. She just dominated them. But when she fought people who had speed, athleticism, some physical strength. You started seeing holes in her game. And it's not that she's a terrible fighter. There's some craft to what she does. She hangs around the edge of the striking range, and then she'll crash into it. She'll crash that pocket, throwing the volume to kind of get you defensive. And when she gets you defensive, she starts throwing those head and body, those head and body combinations, switching them up. And that body work is especially important because it's what slows people down. So those girls who have that speed advantage, those girls who have that skill advantage, they can't get the correct pop on their strikes. They can't throw sustained combinations. They can't move their feet under duress because, you know, their gas tank is low. So it's, it's at a, I don't think her execution is technically really sharp. I think she's kind of an awkward and somewhat ugly fighter, kind of like a John Lineker, 
But the fact of the matter is she puts so much pressure and so much physicality and she's intelligent in how she distributes that abuse that she essentially, essentially chops people down. She breaks people down underneath that pressure and that physical strength. But the thing is, she uses that size and that durability and that physical strength and that aggression. That's her line of defense. She doesn't have a legitimate line of defense. Her feints aren't really great. Her head movement isn't really great. Her footwork isn't spectacular to me. The fact of the matter is most people, when she starts pressuring them, it's like the Ronda Rousey thing. Since people don't have defensive footwork, when Ronda comes right at them, they either stand right there, exchange, or they back up into the cage. When Jessica comes after people, most people don't have the depth, the footwork and the distance management to pivot and walk her into a shot, to back up to the cage and then spin off the cage. And when she runs head first in the cage, land those counter shots and reset. They don't have that skill. So the, the pressure and the aggression she shows is going to overwhelm 90% of the people, even the people who are better offensive strikers than her. They lack that defensive and counter ability to make her pay and to limit the, the opportunities she has to be effective. And most people also, they're not strong enough or technical enough in a clinch to slow her down and to start chopping into her gas tank. So what, my, what I'm basically saying is a lot of the work that Andrade does is based solely on the physical advantages she has over the girl she's fought. Calderwood has poor defense. She starts off slow. Andrade goes all out. So of course she's going to overwhelm Calderwood. By the time Calderwood's warming up, Andrade is already in full work mode. Jessica Panay, she's an atom weight. She can't hit for power. She's not a hard hitter. We saw her fight Daniel Taylor recently. Daniel Taylor almost knocked her out with single shots. She wasn't even putting punches together. She can't take a shot from a big hitter. She can't give a shot to a person with any sort of chin. And then you have Angela Hill, who's also a girl who should be fighting at, at Adam Wade. Shout out to Stephen Wright, who pointed that out, and the Heavy Hand podcast, who also reaffirmed that comment. She's too small. She can't, she can't be in clinches with Andrade. She doesn't have the power to keep Andrade off her. And she doesn't have the technical skill to consistently make the right moves defensively. So she got overwhelmed. All of them got overwhelmed by a physical skill. You can tell me about the technique, but if Andrade wasn't that much bigger, that much stronger, and hit that much harder than them, she wouldn't be able to get that work done because against the same caliber opponents at Bantamweight, she was getting submitted. She was getting dropped. She was getting slammed. She was getting beat up by the same caliber opponent at a higher weight class. Only thing that changed was the weight class and the people's ability to match her physical skills. Against Joanna, Joanna has, is a comparable athlete, and she's physically strong. You haven't seen Joanna get really bullied. If you look through all the fight, Valerie Letourneau dropped from Bantamweight to fight it to fight at um, strawweight. She didn't bully Joanna. Claudia Gadelia is the best athlete, physically strongest person in division outside of Andrade, maybe even, even compared to Andrade. She didn't bully Joanna. She didn't bully Joanna. Nobody's done it. Nobody's manhandled her. Nobody's pushed her around. And so now Andrade is going to have a person who's willing to engage in clinches with her, who's willing to stand in the pocket with her, who's going to put pressure on her. And anytime Andrade has had somebody hurt her and really put some pressure on her, she hasn't handled it well. She doesn't like getting hit physically like that continuously. She doesn't respond to getting hit as much very well as you would think. And defensively, when you put her on her heels or you stop that forward progress or you can turn her and walk her into shots, she's not the same fighter. All of a sudden, all that, all of a sudden, those, those swings look real sloppy. That footwork looks real lazy and that defense looks non-existent. It just looks better because she applies so much pressure that the other people can't consistently get their own offense off against her. Anna's class, her cardio, her range of striking and her physical strength is going to be a huge issue for Andrade, because as much as people talk about her punching power and how devastating it is, and she hits hard, 
and Angela Hill, she's not a big, she's not a big straw weight. She wasn't even close to knocking her out. She was hitting her a lot, but she didn't have her on Queer Street. She didn't drop her. Angela dropped Andrade with an elbow. She didn't drop Angela. And as, as much as she beat up on Jessica Panay, Jessica Panay doesn't have a great chin. And she hit her with a whole lot of shots. And even though she did knock her out, consider how much volume she put out, that's not that impressive when you think about it. And when she fought Calderwood, she didn't, she didn't knock Calderwood out cold. She didn't drop Calderwood. She got her hands on her and physically manhandled her. She came at her with pressure and volume. Calderwood's defense wasn't there. She tied her up, threw her around. Calderwood, got, they got in some scrambles, and she finished her. She wasn't just knocking her all around with punches. She wasn't knocking her legs out from underneath her with leg kicks. She doesn't show that kind of power. I've seen people stand up to her power before. They just can't stand up to the pressure. I can't imagine that Joanna is not ready for that pressure and doesn't have a technical answer on the feet for that pressure. Now, if, jo if Jessica wants to try wrestling her, and trying to go for the submission, that would be better because it would open up strikes for her because now Joanna has to defend strikes and takedowns. But if she's just going to go into striking exchanges, I don't think she's going to win those. And even if she gets into the ground, I don't think she's, I don't think she's a good enough wrestler and I don't think her control is good enough for her to essentially keep taking Joanna down round after round after round to win a decision or to finish her. I, I don't see either one of those things happening. I could see her overwhelming her early maybe but the longer the fight goes, I see Joanna pulling away, ramping up that volume, using the advantage she has in footwork and that clinch work and chopping her down. She might stop her late. I mean, she could, I honestly believe she could stop her early. Most likely she stops her late if she, if she fights smart. Joanna, it's like the Claudia fight. Joanna could make this really easy or she could make it really difficult. It depends on what fight she wants to fight. She wants to make it easier, it'll be a lot easier. She wants to make it difficult and prove a point, well then it's going to be 50-50 either way it goes. But I'm still going to pick Joanna because I go with experience i go with activity and i go against what you've done against a better class of opposition and joanna has been consistently dominant against a better class of opposition she's shown more skill and more ability to, to adjust we've seen joanna work out of bad spots we've seen her against somebody who's athletically superior or comparable we haven't seen that with andrage not at straw weight when we saw her go against comparable athletes at bantamweight she lost each and every fight by stoppage finish 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 every time she fought somebody on her level who was better technically and, and had comparable technical athletic ability she lost and she lost decisively so now she's facing the first person who's got better skills than her and has comparable athleticism so i have to go with history history tells me she's going to lose and she's going to lose decisively you think she's going to lose decisively huh yeah I, i'm not saying it won't be close i'm not saying there won't be moments but I'm, I'm going to go, I'm going to go with history tells me. I'm going to go with what I show. I've never seen Andrade have to adjust. I've never seen her have to adjust. When she fought bigger girls, they roughed her up and finished her. When she fought girls she could dominate, she ran over them. I haven't seen her have to make an adjustment. We know that, we know that Joanna can adjust if she gets hurt. We know she can adjust, she can survive if she gets taken down. We know she can get back up if she gets taken down. We know she can survive when she's trapped on the cage. She can figure it out. We've never seen Andrade have to go to a plan B or make an adjustment. We don't know that she can do it. What if her plan A doesn't work? What if plan A is just getting her chopped up? What's she gonna do, box? Is she gonna box Jessica now? Is she gonna box Joanna? I haven't seen her do that. She's just gonna out-wrestle her. I haven't seen her out-wrestle anybody for three rounds straight. I've never seen her do it. She didn't do it against Hill. Hill's smaller than her, weaker than her. Didn't have the defensive footwork to get away from her. She didn't take her down and pound her out. So that means either she couldn't take her down or what's worse, she's so confident in her skills on the feet that she didn't think it was necessary to take her down. Angela Hill, the best chance to win the fight. 
those kind of mistakes get you beat at the world-class level. They might get you past people like Angela Hill, Jessica Panay. They don't get you past people like Joanna Jadrid. So if she's if she's comfortable and she doesn't have any injuries and she, she's going to fight smart and she's going to fight discipline, I don't see the fight being quite as difficult as everybody sees it. It's still going to be tough because she's not going to stop coming and she's going to have to put Andrade away because Andrade isn't just going to quit. But I don't, I don't, technically there's such a gap between them. Athletically, there's not as big a gap. And usually in these kind of fights, Andrade tends to fold up. Every time she's been put in a bad spot, she has been finished. She has folded up every time. Look at the tough fight she had. Carmouche, Renal, um, when she fought Raquel Pennington the second time. Finish, finish, finish. The minute she couldn't bully somebody, she couldn't dictate pace, she lost, and she lost decisively. And I think the similar thing happens in this fight. She can win. She's bigger, she's stronger, she's more physical, and she's super relentless. And Joanna has been in some really tough fights. I just don't think she does win. I can see how she, she can win. I just don't think she does it. So when you look at this um, division, what do you think is next for both the winner and the loser? Is Rose Lama Eunice fight immediately added to the conversation? Well, if the fight's a close fight, they might try for a rematch. If it's a really back and forth fight, they, they really might try for a rematch just because outside of Rose, they don't have a lot of legitimate contenders. I mean, especially now that they have this new weight division coming out, they're, they're, they're going to be kind of strapped for contenders. Um, I honestly think that if, if Andrade loses, I think she might move up to the flyweight division because she's, she, she's talked about it before. The weight cut is very tough for her. So she might consider moving up. Um, the fight's really close. It'd be a rematch with Andrade or Pasa, or Rose Namunis would have to be next on deck. She's the biggest name in division. I can't even imagine to think who would else would qualify for a title shot in division right now. Felice Herrick, maybe, I guess. That'd be the closest. I don't I don't know anybody else who's put together a better... better Has better Felice won in the UFC? Uh, yeah, Felice. I think she won her last two in a row, but they weren't, they weren't over top notch. She beat Alex Grasso and she beat... Kaylee Coran, so she's on a two-fight win streak. But as far as like people who are on win streaks, who else is there? I mean, Claudia, if she beats Carolina, she'd be right back in the mix. But outside of those two, outside of her, her Rose, her and Rose would probably be the front runners. And I think Rose would probably get the shot against Jen J. Trigg because she hasn't fought her yet. It'd be a new matchup. Whereas Claudia's already fought her twice. If Andrade wins, once again, that opens up the whole division again because Andrade is just coming up and there's a whole host of fighters she hasn't she hasn't beaten yet, or she hasn't faced. So that would open up the the title the title picture again. If just if Joanna wins, then you know essentially it's Rose. And then if Claudia wins her next fight, then I would assume Claudia would be up on deck next. Do you think that they would give her that fight, seeing how she's already lost to her twice so early? Um, essentially, based on based on my knowledge, because I, I know I know her team a little bit. I know Claudia's team a little bit. There's not enough people with world-class wins. And if Claudia beats Carolina and then Rose fights Joanna, and Claudia would probably have to win one other fight. But then again, who else was on? Everybody is that actually ranked lower than her. So she'd be fighting another person ranked lower than her. There wouldn't be anybody else for her to fight. It'd, it'd almost be automatically you'd have to put that fight. You know it's going to be a good fight. It's just a matter of whether you put it in a fight, if you understand what I'm saying. Yeah. So, I think if Rose fights her first and then Claudia puts another win together, that essentially puts her back in the title match. 
because they don't they don't have anybody else. Felice Herrick wouldn't be ready at this point. Angela Hill hasn't even had a win yet. Um, who else is there? Paige Van Sant. She's had wins, but she hasn't won any time recently. And a lot of the other girls, I believe, are going to be leaving to the flyweight division. So that doesn't leave them very many options for legitimate title contenders. And the thing is, the strawweight division is my favorite division right now. Well, not my favorite division. I'm always going to be a lightweight and a featherweight guy because that's where I I, I compete. Um, but when it comes to the women, you know, the strawweight division is my favorite division. They got this flyweight group coming in, and we're, we're going to see what they're going to do. But 115, you know, these women have not failed yet. I can't think of a boring main event that we've had as to um, – 115 pound women, except for maybe the Carla Esparza fight when she won the title. So, I mean, outside of that, all the other bouts have been um, pretty good. Uh, so, it's been a very evenly matched, unlike the uh, Bantamweight division where it's been essentially Rousey and then everybody else has been playing hot potato. The, the Strawweight division has had very well matched fights for the most part, even in the fights where someone's class showed over the period of the fight. They've been competitive. They were exciting matchups. You could see how a fight could be exciting. You could see how another person will win. Whereas at Bantamweight, it's kind of clear cut who's the best and who's not. And the featherweight division only has two people in it. I guess it only has one now that Holly Holm moved back down to Bantamweight. So strawweight's basically been the, the saving grace of women's MMA in the UFC as far as the quality of fights and the amount of fights. They've all been pretty technical. They've already been high paced and they've all been action packed for the most part. Like you said, I can't say there's been too many boring fights. Uh, uh, throughout the duration of time they've had the strawweights in the UFC. Oh, man. I, that, those two fights alone, you know, this fight and then the next fight we're, we're going to discuss has had me very interested in this card as a whole. And, you know, when we have this fight with Frankie Edgar and Yuri Rodriguez um, as the featherweight, I guess a featherweight feature bout or something like that, however I, I want to say yeah. it. But, um... Man, this is a crazy fight. Well, actually, I skipped over. I skipped over the Damian Maya Jorge Masvidal fight. We'll come back to that. We're gonna talk about my boy Frankie Edgar first, um, and Yair Rodriguez. This is a crazy fight because just I'm I'm sitting. I was thinking about this fight the other day. You know, obviously, I didn't know this, but Rodriguez is the tallest man that Frankie Edgar has fought while he's been in the UFC. Um, he's even taller than Charles um, Oliveira. I didn't know that. And I think it's a fight that's challenging to Frank. I think it's a fight he can win. Um, I was reading a, a review um, of this fight yesterday, and it had Rodriguez getting the victory. And I understood the points that, that they were making. The thing is, though, um, and I'm gonna, we're going to talk about this you know, later on um, and during, during this part of the conversation, but if Edgar loses this fight, we could very well see him go down to 135. You know, that, and that's a whole other conversation at another day. But talk to me about this fight when you see these two men uh, matched up. Uh, it is really going to come down to can Edgar make his experience a factor in in, in the fight because that's that's going to be the biggest advantage he has in this fight. It's experience, it's world class experience, it's ability to work work through tough spots and make adjustments. That's the advantage he has. As far as the physical aspect of it, there's there's not one advantage he has over Yair at this point. He's the bigger guy, he's the taller guy, he's the faster guy, he's a more explosive guy. Even though he's not a big hitter. He's a bigger hitter than, than Edgar, especially at this point of the game. The question is, is Edgar going to be able to fight smart and fight in an efficient manner and force Yair to think? If Yair is having to think and it's a slower pace fight where it's a matter of you're trying to find the openings, you're trying to get Edgar in the right position, you're trying to cut the cage off him, then Frankie will be fine because he can win that kind of fight. He's the better 
he's the better fighter. He's the more experienced fighter. He he's the more proven fighter. He has more avenues to win. He could win by knockout. He could win by decision. He could win just by a wrestling. He could win by submission. He has a lot of different avenues to win win this fight. Who does? But I'm if sorry. He can't make uh, Frankie. Frankie okay. has more options. He's 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 one more. He's one more fight against better competition in different ways. He's won fights by knockout. He's won fights by submission. He's out wrestled guys for for multiple rounds. He's boxed and wrestled guys for multiple rounds. So there's a lot of things that Frankie's been proven to do against the, the top end fighters. The main thing he has to do is make Yair think. He can't have Yair dictating when they fight, where they fight, what position in the cage they fight, what kind of engagements they have when they fight. He's got to do all the control, and he's got to slow the fight down and make the young guy think, make the young guy have to figure him out, figure find his rhythm, figure out his footwork, figure out which things are feints and which things are set up for strikes, which things are feints and which things are actual legitimate strikes, when he's going for a legitimate takedown, when he's going, when he's just setting him up to punch him, or when he's punching to punch, and when he's punching to get in for a takedown, he's got to he's got to hit him with a full array of skills to make him hesitate because that hesitation is going to take away the advantages he has in explosiveness, in power, and athleticism. That's his best line of thought. Yair's best line is essentially putting the pressure on Edgar because one thing I haven't seen from Rodriguez is that he doesn't get. I haven't seen him get tired really. Not really. I saw him get a little bit against. Alex Caceres, but that was like above sea level, you know, or below sea level. I get it mixed up. But he fought at a, a high pace, you know, doing spinning kicks and jumping and rolling and scrambling for the full full five rounds against Caceres. And he was he was breathing hard, but he was still fighting at a high pace. I don't think Edgar can fight at that pace anymore. I think he he's had to be more efficient and more defensively responsible because he just can't go round after round at a really high pace. And that, I, don't, I don't think he's capable of that anymore. He's got to be a lot more measured in what he does. And Yair's got to force the fight into a high pace and high activity where his athleticism is the determining factor. High, high pace scrambles, high pace striking exchanges. That's, that's his route to winning because I think, I believe that Frankie is slowing down a little bit and that he could kind of wear him down early if he can set it high enough pace and come on late in the late in the second rounds or the middle or the or the third round and take over the fight. But I haven't seen Yair have to fight a guy who has options, multiple ways of winning fight. I haven't had, seen him fight a guy who has any sense of poise or cage IQ or ability to adjust when he's losing a fight. And Frankie's done it all. So I, I'm going to go with Frankie because I always value experience over anything else, whether it's athleticism or even superior skill. I, I, I weigh in on the side of the guy who's seen and done and everything and knows how to react in the toughest of spots. We still haven't seen Yair in a really tough spot. We haven't seen him taken down and really having to take abuse. We haven't seen him really have to fight off submission. We haven't seen what he does when his plan A isn't working. So there's a lot of questions about him. I know what Frankie's going to do. I know he's not going to quit. I know he's hard to knock out. I know he can change game plans halfway through a fight if it's not working. I don't know that about Yair. I just know that he's very dynamic, very unorthodox, very creative. And he has a lot of confidence in himself, but those things don't necessarily win you fights. Those those win you fights against a certain caliber person. He's gonna have to prove that it wins against somebody the caliber of Frankie Edgar. That being said, Frankie Edgar is on the decline. That's why he's had to get so much more efficient and much more technical because he he too doesn't have the margin error he used to. He's had injuries in fights. He's coming to fights injured. He doesn't take a shot quite as well as he used to. You don't notice it because he doesn't take as many shots as he used to. I've noticed that, actually. Yeah. So, I mean, against 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 the Jeremy Stevens, he was outclassing him. 
but he was injured and it gave him just enough time for Jeremy Stevens to land that one or two shots to put him in trouble. If Yair Rodriguez lands that shot on him, I don't know that he makes it out of the fight because Yair isn't like Stevens. He knows how to move his feet. He has multiple ways to strike at you and land shots. And he's very dynamic at closing distance or flurries of shots or spinning attacks. So he won't, he won't be able to just outscramble him and take him down and play it safe. Yair, the pace he sets, and the activity he has, that won't allow for it. And he's so dynamic that if Frankie gets caught one of the shots, he will. I believe he will get finished. I honestly believe that. But I, I'm going to go with Frankie because I, I think he's got the experience and I think he's just going to um, run and outclass him and walk him down is, is what I'm thinking he's going to do. I mean, he for him to stay in contention in this weight class, he needs to win this fight. He loses this fight and uh, a move to 35 is a must. You think he actually does that? I don't know that he. I don't know that he does it. I mean, to be quite honest, after he lost the second fight to uh, Jose Aldo, I mean, even after the first one, I, I really didn't. Honestly, when he lost to Aldo the first time, I thought it was such a technical superiority on the on the part of Aldo. I didn't really see Edgar ever beating him. Like, I, even when he went on that huge win streak, we talked about that. I was like, he's beat guys who don't test him in the same ways that Aldo does. He hasn't shown the necessary improvements to beat a guy like Jose Aldo, and that's going to be the same problem he's going to be facing. In, in, until the fight with Aldo and Holloway occurs. I, I personally think he probably should have already moved to 35 if if he wanted to, because once again, that division's competitive, but there's a lot of fights that he's capable of winning in that division. And right now, he seems very far away from the title. If Jose Aldo wins, what's the chances of him getting a third rematch with Aldo? A sec, th- third shot at him? Not yeah, very, I think that's, very that's likely. That, those are pipe dreams. Yeah, and I mean, he might have a shot at it's Max Holloway, but my, my line of thinking, and I'm not saying Frankie's afraid of him, but on Max Holloway's ascension to the interim title belt, if Frankie Edgar would have called for Max Holloway, he would have gotten Max Holloway. He didn't call for him for a reason. The same way when Verdum had a chance to fight Stipe the first time when Kane got injured, he didn't want that fight. Oh, it's too soon. It's too... No, there's a reason why you don't ask for certain fights. There's a reason why you ask for certain fights. The reason why you don't ask for certain fights. He never asked for Max Holloway. Anytime he wanted Max Holloway, he would have got him. If Frank Yeager would have told anyone, anyway, I want Holloway to prove that I'm the the interim champ or to prove that I de- deserve the next shot, he could have got him, and Holloway would have signed off on it. But he never asked for him, at least as far as I know. And to me, that speaks volumes about what he thinks his opportunities are against someone like Max Holloway. Yeah, I'm not going to argue with you on that point there. I know he has, I believe he may be coming off of another ser- uh, another serious surgery. Um before this fight as well, too. So I definitely get the points that you made there. Talk to me about Rodriguez, man. Is he the breakthrough Mexican star that the UFC is hoping he is? It looks like it. I mean, he's starting to talk more. He seems more comfortable. He's a good-looking kid. I hate when people call people a kid, but I'm calling him kid anyways. <laughs> he's He's got an exciting style, and he just doesn't ever slow down. He's a, he's always throwing something. He's always scrambling. He's always working back to his feet. He works at a high work rate, and he seems to fight in a manner that plays to the uh, to the fans that they're trying to market him to. They don't want to see a guy, you know, ducking around, pot-shotting, chipping away at somebody, spinning away, showboating. They don't want to see that. They want a guy who's coming to fight. They want a guy who's coming to put somebody away. They want a guy who's going to put a lot of volume out there and look for contact. And Yair does all of those things. The question about Yair isn't that he has the athleticism or he doesn't have the style. The question about him is does he have the discipline to fine-tune the holes in his game because a lot of his game success has been based off of athleticism. 
He's so dynamic. He can fight it at such a high pace. He's got such good balance. He's so quick with his hands and his feet. But th- there's a lot of holes in his game as far as backing straight up, moving in on straight lines, kind of getting lazy with his footwork, standing in front of people. I mean, those are the kind of things that against Andre Files and, and hookers and guys like that, the guys he fought, Rosa, those are things he can overcome just based off his natural talents. But against a guy like Frankie Edgar, it's going to take a little bit more craft. It's going to take a little bit more discipline. It's going to take some of the subtle things for him to win. The athleticism might close the show, but he needs those little subtle aspects, those little half steps, those quarter steps, the faint. He needs to get he needs the sharpness with his hands needs to be there to set up the power, set up the, the unorthodox strikes. And so, and from what I've seen, he's been slowly improving, but Edgar's going to be his biggest test. Now we're going to see if he's really improved or it's just been a matter of him facing third tier guys who were incapable of exposing him. He looked dynamic against BJ Penn, but. I mean, that's BJ Penn. Yeah, that that was BJ Penn. And I meant that all disrespect included. Yeah. Now he's facing facing a guy who's, who's still on the decline, but a guy who's still considered top three in the division, a guy who knows how to win, a guy who's found ways to win against similar odds. So this is going to be the test to show how much he's improved and if he's really ready to take this next step. If he loses, Yair doesn't really lose a lot. If he loses to Frank Yeager, world champions, world champions who lost to him, um, guys who've been champions in multiple divisions and multiple organizations have lost to him. So a loss to Frank Yeager doesn't hurt him a whole lot. Frank Yeager is beating the very best there is. But it's going to show that he's not ready for what he's not ready to be a primetime player. He might have the look, he might have the image, he might have the style, but he doesn't have the craft yet. But um, he, he's got all the talent, and if he can just get it together, guy's the limit. Yeah, the, the sky's the limit for a guy like that. Um, the, biggest, the biggest concern I have, I mean, he, he worked with a smaller camp, but now he's been working with Jackson's. He's kind of been testing himself against a certain caliber of guy on, in training. He's gotten to have the benefit of having different coaches look at him and kind of break his game down and kind of give him some assessments and some direction. And that's what a lot of young guys aren't willing to do. A lot of young guys are just so focused on what I'm doing works or what I'm doing is getting me where I need to get. But they're not working on improving their games. You can win five fights in a row and not improve. You could win a fight, lose a fight, win a fight, and lose a fight and slowly be getting better. And what I've seen from Rodriguez, he's getting better little by little. But once again, he hasn't been facing guys with athleticism or guys who are comfortable going against world-class athleticism who can really extend him, who can really test him, who can really make the things he's made. And Frankie Edgar is the kind of guy who can do that. Frankie Edgar is the guy who's going to tell him, is he, world, is he really world-class or is he just a world-class talent? There is a difference. And we're going to find that out. I, I, I think Edgar still has it in him. But if he's really coming off a of surgery or something, Man, that that's not a good look for him because he he's gonna. Uh, I think he that. did get that that surgery, Doc. I remember him posting a video of it on his Instagram uh, a couple months ago. Yeah, uh, I, I'm still gonna stick with him because I, I always favor experience and ask. And Frankie hasn't shown uh, uh, he's been, he's as much as his decline been technical and strategical awareness and improvement. So that should balance it out. So I'm gonna go with Edgar, but I, I'm not gonna act like yeah yeah just have some very obvious ways of winning this fight. I just don't think that he has the, the craft and the subtleties down at this point right now. But when you have that kind of athleticism, you don't always need it. So I have another big question for you, too. Um, 
we're looking at two potential big uh, Mexican stars. Both, you know, one's a flyweight, the other could, would be a, a featherweight. Who do you see the most potential in, Rodriguez or Brandon Moreno? Uh, Moreno has a lot of potential. I mean, I don't – nobody – Moreno wasn't even highly touted. He just got thrown to the fire, and he's done nothing but perform. And every time he's fought, he has literally lo- looked like, I won't say a different fighter, but so much of an improved fighter. His hands, his ability to transition through phases. I think Moreno's actually shown the more more improvement in a, in a shorter time frame against a better level of opposition than Yair has. And since... Um, I really think Moreno might have something. They really might have something in Moreno. I think he I think he might be a little bit more of a bigger star. I think he might translate a little bit better over sometimes guys who who have the more of the classically handsome look and that kind of style. Sometimes they don't always go over quite as well. Oscar De La Hoya was always big, but he didn't always go quite he didn't go over quite as well because he didn't have that kind of edge, that kind of that look or that fighting style or, or that image to kind of you know, of that 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 tough, rough, aggressive, punishing fighter. He so he kind of missed out a little bit on that. Same thing with Canelo. As popular as he is, a lot of there's a certain segment of fans who won't buy in because he doesn't have that. He doesn't have that edge that Mexican fans prefer. Gennady Golovkin over him because Golovkin's a finisher. Golovkin's a fighter. Golovkin goes to make war. Sometimes Canelo seems to be involved in trying to be a technical slick boxer, and that's not always what those fans want to see. And from that point, I think Moreno really might have more potential because nobody expected anything from Moreno. Yair's been touted as a star, a potential star. Nobody saw that from Moreno, especially especially when he lost in the Ultimate Fighter. Nobody thought he'd be doing what he's doing. So he has the bigger ceiling because there's there's really no expectation for him. Everything he does is is far exceeding what the UFC thought he'd be able to do. Which guy do you see as champion first? Uh, I mean, given the fact that Moreno fights in the same division as Demetrius Johnson, I'd have to say Yair, Yair Rodriguez. I mean, nobody's been able to touch nobody's been able to touch Demetrius, and and I, you know, I mean, the way the division goes, the way he cuts through the division so dominantly, there's a good chance that if Moreno puts another fighter puts another two fights together, he he might be in a position to fight Demetrius Johnson. And Johnson, nobody's been able to put him in any sort of real spot to be finished or to really be in danger in years. So Yair's got a much better shot against whoever at 45 than he than, than Moreno has against Demetrius Johnson at flyweight. Okay, all right there. So um, let's take a step back and talk about the fight that I skipped over, Damian Maia and Jorge Masvidal. Now, we have one guy who the UFC wants to keep out of the um, – out of the out of, out of the title picture, I don't care what anyone says. And you have another guy who is like, uh, I guess, a surprise entrant into the into the welterweight title picture in Jorge Masvidal. Talk to me about this fight here and what do you see happening? Um, I see a path that Masvidal can win this fight, but um, he he can't avoid he can't afford to have this fight hit the ground on the ground hit the floor for too long. Um, I think once again in Damian Maya, you have another Brazilian fighter who is not happy with the UFC join the club basically, because none of them seem to be very happy with the way that they do the matchmaking, and rightfully so. Guys are getting skipped over for title shots and money fights and headlining positions on cars because, um, 
I don't know what else to say. I guess you could say they're boring, but I've seen boring fighters get more opportunities than some of these other guys. And with like, what, six fights in a row, almost all by finish. I don't understand how Damian Maya isn't, hasn't got a title shot by now. or hasn't even been discussed as a potential title challenger. It, it's pretty embarrassing actually on a professional level. Um, uh, I, I see a lot. I see a couple of ways he could win this. I know that Maya is very dangerous on the ground. He, he's, he's, he gets you there and he finishes, but even against guy against Matt Brown, he dominated him for large periods of time, but it took him time to finish Matt Brown. When he fought Rory McDonald, I know that was I know that was years ago, but McDonald played a very safe, very technical game and he was able to touch him up on the feet and then basically do enough damage on the feet where he, he was able to create openings on the ground by just controlling, being very disciplined and then working his escapes and get back to his feet. And Damian Maya, what people keep forgetting about is he's an older guy. He seems like his cardio is super good. He seems like he's super disciplined and unstoppable because guys aren't able to get shots off on him. They're not comfortable letting their strikes go. They're not comfortable trying to counter him when he counter counter his pressure with the feet. They're not really comfortable working the full extent of their game. Either that or they don't have a full extent of their game to work, which kind of makes it easier for him. Jorge Masvidal can box. He can legitimately box. And that's going to make a big difference because Maya is not going to be able to cut the cage down on him like he did Carlos Connick. Carlos Connick can't box. Gunnar Nelson can't box. As dynamic and unorthodox as they are, and their footwork is good in certain dimensions, when pressed, their footwork always falls apart. Connick's footwork has consistently fallen apart under, under consistent pressure. Um, Gunnar Nelson's footwork has consistently fallen apart under consistent pressure. Matt Brown's footwork has constantly fallen apart under consistent pressure. All these guys are better when they can dictate the terms of engagement as far as pressing forward and putting volume on somebody or cutting the cage off on somebody or coming in and out as they as they choose. In the case of Jorge Masvidal, he can walk you down with pressure because he's got he can change the length of his steps and the rhythm in his steps, or he can sit he can stand in the pocket and counter you, or he can fight off the back foot and circle laterally, switch directions and set traps for you to come into where he can land counter shots and he can walk you into the uppercuts, the hooks, the knees, the kicks, the straight rights, whatever he wants to do. That's something that Damian Maya hasn't had to face. Now, to be fair, Masvidal hasn't faced the guy who's going to pressure him and really stay on him and try to force him through the cage. He hasn't faced that. But Maya hasn't faced anybody with any sort of the, the, any diversification in their footwork. And so that's going to be a huge issue. I don't think he cuts the cage off on Mastodal as easy as he's done other people. And unlike other guys who are really scared to go to ground with him, um, Jorge is aware of it and he respects him on the ground. But the ground with Damian Maya though, he's been, he's like almost a 55 veteran. He's faced a litany of guys. And while he hasn't faced anybody with Jorge, with um, Damian's specific skill set, the quality of his grappling and the control and the finishing ability, he's faced, he's faced enough guys where he feels confident and he's got enough experience and seasoning that he believes he can survive in those areas. He's not going to be fighting scared. Matt Brown was fighting scared. Matt Brown is best when he can apply pressure, but he's not going to apply pressure against a guy who can take him down and finish him like that. Um, Carlos Conant is okay when he can spin and throw knees and lead knees and huge right hands and wild kicks to the body and the leg when he can apply pressure with his volume and his creativity, but he's not going to take those chances against a guy who's as much of a finisher as Damian Maya. Masvidal doesn't have that fear. He's going to fight smart, but he's not going to be afraid. He's not going to be afraid to counter. 
He's not going to be afraid to step back and counter as he steps back. He's not going to be afraid to circle out and counter. He's not going to be afraid to get in extended grappling exchanges with Maya because he, feel, he's, he feels that he's good enough to hang, hang in those areas. And that's something that Maya hasn't had to deal with. He, he hasn't had to face a guy who's willing to fire on him. He hasn't been willing to face a guy who's willing to take him down. He's not, he, hasn't, he, he hasn't faced a guy with a skill set to get off the cage or to make him work to get in a position and pick him off as, as he's closing that distance. Masvidal can do all those things, and that's going to be a huge adjustment for Damian Maya in this fight. Once Maya gets into the ground, it really is his world, and he's really that good. But Maya is not a textbook takedown guy. He's not super explosive. He's not super slick. He's not super dynamic in what he does. What he does is he applies pressure, he cuts you down, and then he gets you to the fence when he goes for the takedown, and he forces you to fight and defend. And he's willing to throw himself down, to drag you to the ground, or he slowly works into other positions to finish you because he's that sure of his finishing ability. But against a guy like Masvidal, I don't know that it's that easy. Masvidal isn't afraid of him. Masvidal's coming in, and he's willing to fight him at any range that the fight's going to take place at. He's not going to be trying to force the fight on the ground, but he's not running from it either. And that mentality, the ability, the willingness to fight somebody at every range is an advantage that Maya doesn't have. Maya's not going to be fighting someone scared. He's not going to be fighting someone who can't counter him. He's not going to fight someone who's gonna, who can't fight off the back foot. And that variety and skill set is what I think is going to be the difference. I mean, Jorge's, he's a veteran's veteran. And I think that's the difference in it. As good as Maya's been on the ground, his wrestling is still not top-notch. His striking defense is only is really good because of his footwork, but his footwork is only really good because of the threat his grappling presents to people. A guy who's not afraid of that grappling threat, a guy who's willing to take those chances, is going to land on him. And when he starts taking hits, and when he starts getting hits to the body and to the head, Maya's not the same guy. That pressure doesn't exist. His defense on the feet is average at best and his ability to to be consistently effective with any sort of counter on the feet is average at best so i think jorge has more ways to win and i actually think he does win i, I don't nothing against maya and, and if he can get to the ground and get to the ground clean i think he win the fight and i think he can win it handily but i don't know that he gets to the feet i don't know that he gets to the fight to the ground mainly without taking abuse and as good as he's been on the ground survived on the ground with him. Gunnar Nelson went three rounds with him without getting, getting submitted. Matt Brown survived three rounds. Yeah, he was getting dominated on the ground positionally, but he survived in late in the third round. He actually put some strikes together and started defending the takedowns of Maya because Maya was gassing out from having to work so much control and so much positions and so many submission attempts. It's not like Maya is just a guarantee to tap you automatically when you hit the ground. That doesn't happen. Some guys it happens, but a lot of cases he has to work for it. And, and against a guy who's got as much experience as Masvidal, even on the ground, he's going to have to work for it. To get in position to get that takedown, he's going to have to work for it. He's going to have to work for the actual takedown. And that's not even factoring the leg kicks, the jabs, the check hooks, the knees, and the body shots he's going to have to take on the way to getting into those positions. You know, I'm, what I'm most interested in, in, in this fight is um... – to see if Damien can get the fight down to the ground quickly and if he can uh, secure the finish there. He's looked great at welterweight, man. He's looked great from a cardio cardio um, standpoint as well, you know, other than the Roy McDonald fight. So I'm wondering what happens early in, in this bout. I think what happens in the first couple of moments are, is really going to kind of tell for us because, you know, he tries to push the pace immediately, quickly, secure a takedown, and get the finish. So I, I'm just curious to see if he can be successful. 
again because like everyone knows it's coming everyone sees it coming and it's just it's, it's, it's a crazy idea to think he may be able to pull it off again um and get a get a get a big win yeah but, but he got tired in the in the mcdonald fight but why did he get tired because he had to work at every range he had to work to get in on mcdonald he had to walk through strikes body shots jabs right hand he had to work to get the takedown he had to work for position and then he had to work to hold him down when he fought Condit, Condit was just trying to tie him up. Condit was so scared against the he tried to tie him up and hoped that the ref would stand him. That wasn't going to happen. Matt Brown was just dom- dominated and was so focused on defense, he couldn't get a reversal. He couldn't get escape. But when he fought Gunnar Nelson, even though he was dominating, he, he got pushed a little bit because Nelson was able to, to switch positions. Nelson was able to defend. Nelson wasn't able to really complete any submissions, but he was able to threaten to a, a certain degree with him. And he got extended a little bit. The only thing that I talk about with Maya is everybody assumes the minute it hits the ground, he's finished. And I've seen three, four, five, six fights where he's been to the ground multiple rounds and it took him multiple rounds to finish. It's not an automatic it's not an automatic loss when you get to the ground. He takes time to work, especially if you know what you're doing and you're focused on defense. You can get away from him. You can reverse him. You can you can get back up to your feet. You can defend submissions. You can defend his takedown. I've seen Matt Brown do it, and Matt Brown's a terrible wrestler. He's a terrible wrestler, and I don't really think much of him as a grappler. And he survived three rounds. He survived two and a, he survived two and a half rounds on the ground with Damian Maya, which tells me that as good as Damian is, it's not a guarantee that he finishes when he gets you there. If the fight stays on the feet, it's a guarantee that Masvidal is going to knock him out. We know that for a fact. I don't know. I don't know that Maya gets through a round if it's a stand-up fight. If it's a purely stand-up fight, he can't get a takedown, and, and Masvidal is putting heat on him. I don't know that he gets through a round. I believe Masvidal can get through can get through three rounds if he's smart with his defense and he's smart with what he does on his feet and his footwork. I think he can get through three rounds in spots on the ground with uh, Maya and not get finished. And that would be the only way Maya would finish, win is if he finished him on the ground. Masvidal doesn't have to finish him on the feet. He just has to score points, outwork him, use his defense and control the engagements they have. He doesn't have to finish them. Maya's going to have to finish to win the decision. I don't think he can win a decision. I think he has to finish. Uh, that's an interesting breakdown. If, if he wins, do you think Masvidal, do you think that they, they kind of reward Masvidal with the welterweight title shot? Because, you know, he's been throwing around the idea that he's the guy that the UFC kind of sends out as a bounty hunter to get rid of the men that they don't want in the title picture. So do you see them putting him in that, that slot or um, does he eventually get disgruntled because he has to wait as well? If that's, if that's really his job, if his job is to get rid of the guys they don't like, first of all, I don't know why they put him with Donald Cerrone because everybody loves him. But if they, if it's really his job to get rid of guys they don't like, then you know, he's going to fight Tyrone Woodley because these dudes can't stand him. Tyrone talks too much. He complains too much. He he brings he brings too many issues to the forefront that hurts the bottom line for the UFC. When he starts talking about racial issues and them treating him this way because of black, that's not good for business. You know that's not good for business. That's never good for business. Those kind of conversations are terrible for business. He's not a draw, and he's been involved in two of the most boring fights in welterweight title history. If so, if they're trying to get rid of him, trying to get him out of there, then that means the next fight Jorge has, if he if he beats Damian, will be Tyrone Woodley. Dude, you know he's gonna fight Tyron next because they can't stand that dude. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I definitely agree with you on that. There, um, let's look at the rest of this card, man, because there's still some other bouts that stand out. 
to me. Um, we have David Branch returning to the UFC after holding two titles. We got A.D. Alvarez and Dustin Poirier. You know, that can be a main event bout on a Fox card all by itself. We have James Vick, Jessica Aguilar, and Courtney Casey. Who, out of all of these fights, who, what, which one stands out the most? I'm going to guess it's the Alvarez and Poirier fight, correct? As far as the actual quality of the fight, I'd have to say Alvarez and Poirier. Everybody's talking about it's a contender fight. I have a totally different look on it. I think it's actually a crossroads fight because Poirier has essentially cost himself title fights and huge wins because he refuses to fight with the poise that a guy with his amount of fights and his amount of rounds in the UFC or MMA has. He's he's There's been multiple occasions where he's been given a game plan and because someone talked to him a certain way or came at him a certain way or disrespected him, he's thrown away the game plan advantages he's had in skills and fought dumb and got finished and, t- and took himself out of title fight, took himself out of big money fight all as a result. And Eddie Alvarez, for as good as he's been is, is throughout his career, he is on the last steps of his career. And even though he went on that three fight win streak, any one of those wins could have been losses. And then in the biggest spot against the biggest name for the chance to really solidify himself as one of the very best lightweights in history, he totally choked. There's, and it's not me saying it. It's what he said. His coaches gave him a game plan, and he totally bailed on it. Even when it was kind of working, he just he got cracked once, and he bailed on it. And then he got cracked again, and then he kept fighting dumb, and he lost. So whoever loses this fight is going to have – is, one, going to take a huge hit in the rankings, in my opinion, and, two, is going to have to take some serious time off and really reconsider what they're trying to do because um, – both guys aren't coming off. I mean, Poirier had a good fight against Miller, but, you know, he's, he's, he should have won that fight a lot easier. But he's, he kind of got injured, and, and, and to a degree, he fought dumb again. So it's like whoever loses this fight is going to really be in a bad spot in the lightweight division because the lightweight division, you can put five or six wins together. You're not even in the top. You're not even the top 15. And these guys are going to be – and this will be another loss to another named fighter. And a named fighter – and, and I, I don't think – Either one of these guys can afford another loss to any fighter. But both of these guys have been recently shown themselves to be vulnerable in the big spots. You know, Alvarez hasn't beaten a lot of elite guys. He's beaten everybody else, but he hasn't beaten a lot of elite guys, especially recently. And Poirier, every time he's gotten to that point where he's going to be in the elite, he's found some way to lose, either by bad game, game planning or, or bad – I won't even say bad game planning, bad execution of a game plan. So I think this is a very important fight for both their careers more so Poirier than Alvarez, because Alvarez made his money. He's had his huge paydays. He's had multiple belts. He's just trying to get him on one more run before his time ends in the UFC or his time in MMA ends. Poirier is still young. He hasn't made his money. He hasn't had the huge paydays. He hasn't had the titles or the title shots. Um, a loss to Alvarez, especially if it's a finishing loss, whether it's submission or knockout, is um, something that sets him back, you know, to me, in, in my eyes, like a year and a half in his career, it's going to set him back that far back. That means he would have lost to Michael Johnson, who would have been the second best lightweight he lost to, and then he lost to Eddie Alvarez, which would have been the first best lightweight he lost to this year. And that, those kind of losses, it's just hard to come back from those in, the, in this kind of division. Do you think that when I look at this fight, you know, I see two guys who both have taken a lot of damage um, in Poirier and, and Alvarez, and I'm not sure who comes out on top here. Um, I'm not sure who comes out on top here. So when you look at this fight, I agree. I don't. I think it's more of a crossroads fight, crossroads type fight as well. Because Poirier isn't new to the game. Um, 
he's been around for a while. He's been in this position before, and he's um, faltered, you know, because he was expected to become a featherweight contender before he f he fell to um, Chan Sung Jung. So this is a new for him. Um, I think that this is a telling moment. If he gets the win here, I don't even think he's any closer to a lightweight title shot. I mean, you're going to put him above um, Nate Diaz. You're going to put him up, uh, above um, Tony Ferguson or Khabib, uh, Namarco Madoff. I doubt that. So really, when you look at this fight, I agree. I think it is a crossroads fight for sure. Um, you know, Alvarez. He needs to fight to be considered to stay in, in the talks. He needs to win this fight. He needs to win this fight. And man, yeah, to like, be honest, I wonder how many fights he has on his contract. Because I think that if he wins, if he doesn't win, he could he could be the next name that we see leaving um, the organization. Yeah, uh, I'm not quite sure either. I just I just know that, like you said, he he's he hasn't ever really performed in the biggest spots. He lost to Jung. He lost to McGregor. Um, he when he fought um, when he fought Michael Johnson, he was on a huge winning streak. That was going to be his entry into the top ten. And, and he got like starts. He got brutally finished. And so now he fought Miller, and that fight was a good fight, but ended up being a little bit more competitive than, than it really should have been based on skills and athleticism and size. And now he's fighting Eddie Alvarez. And if he loses to Eddie Alvarez, if he loses to Alvarez, that two went two losses when facing the best opponents in the division. So he's essentially out of title talks. Even with the win over Alvarez, the way Alvarez got dominated by McGregor. He's still he's still on the title talk, and Dustin Poirier doesn't have a fan base. He's not a kind of guy who moves units, who brings ratings. So he doesn't have any leverage. His only leverage is his ability to put wins together. And if he doesn't, if he can't do that, he's got nothing to keep him in that top five, top ten sort of orbit. He's going to have to go back to fighting guys like Yancy Medeiros and Michael Casella. Casella, I can't say his name correctly. I'm sorry. Yes, sir. And, Kesa, there you go, and other guys of that nature. That's where he's gonna have to start. He's gonna have to start all the way in the back of the line and build his way back up. Same thing with Eddie Alvarez. He loses this fight, and he's gonna be all the way back at the end of the line, especially if he's finished in the fight. Because even like I said, even on his win streak, they were all close wins that could have went either way. Melendez could have went either way. Pettis could have gone either way. RDA was close to stopping him before he got stopped himself, and then he got smoked by Conor McGregor. So you have two guys in this position. In, a, in, one, in the deepest division who can't afford a loss. And one of these guys is going to, the reason they picked this fight is because they're trying to stay in the title talks. And, but whoever loses this is he's out for the next year and a half or two years. They're going to have to put two to three, if not four wins together before they'll even be considered to be in title talks again. Man, um, you know, like this is going to be the, this is going to be an interesting situation to watch unfold after um, Saturday's bouts. It's going to be a crazy situation. The lightweight division has always been interesting, and you know it's kind of easy to forget about guys and forget about them quickly. Um, Jessica Aguilar and, Jay and David Branch, two former World Series of Fighting champions. You know, Branch is coming back to the UFC. Aguilar is still trying to make her way. What do you think about these two guys in their fights on Saturday, or this man and and, and woman? A A Aguilar, she she's in a similar situation. At one point, she was the best strawweight. She was considered the best strawweight back when Carly Esparza was considered one of the best strawweights. She missed her chance to be in the UFC early because she wanted to get paid and be in, in the World Series of Fighting. And then when she came into the UFC, she got dominated. It was it was a, it was competitive to a degree, but essentially she got dominated by Claudia Gadelia. And then she was out after an injury. So, 
and she needs she needs this win. And unfortunately, she's against a fighter in Courtney Casey, who is a lot younger and somewhat of a rookie. But Court Casey has lost to every name fighter she's been in with any real legitimate experience and skill. So she's at a crossroad. This is a cross, another crossroads fight. Whoever loses this fight is going to be close to not having any sort of position in the UFC because they've lost to the better people in division. And Aguilar, I'm assuming, got coming here she's a she was coming in as a champion and one of the considered one of the top two top three straw weights and she hasn't done anything to earn that and if she is someone like casey especially if it's by stoppage i don't i don't care about ring rust or the ufc is not going to care about ring rust that's going to be a big blow to her given the price tag she came in at because I, I guarantee you it wasn't cheap you don't get a champion from another organization to come in for cheap um branch He's interesting because you know he had two cha- two championships in the World Series of Fighting, so it's interesting to see if the if the improvements he made in the development development he showed in that organization are actually legitimate or was just it a matter of him facing lesser opposition? Because when you face lesser opposition, guys who don't have as much skill or as experience, you can look a lot. You can look like you're improving. You can look a lot better than you are. But when you get back to the UFC. Um, then you start facing guys who got comparable athletic ability and who got established enough skill sets where if you haven't really grown as a fighter, you're going to get exposed very quickly. Um, I think he should win his fight um, just based off experience and activity alone. He's fought a lot in the past couple years, so he's built up a lot of experience and a lot of activity. He should be razor sharp coming into the UFC. But that being said, I'm not still too sure about what his, his prospects are moving forward in the division. I mean... I don't know that he beats the top guys. I know that I think he could beat the large majority of guys in the division, but I don't know what he does with the top guys. And if he can't beat the top guys, I don't I don't really know what his purpose to be in the UFC would be. Um, I, mean, I, I, I think it would be interesting. I, one thing I'm definitely interested in seeing is uh, his payout. Um, him and Aguilar as well, you know, because as you mentioned, the former champions, especially Branch being a two-division champion coming back. Um, I'm wondering to see what he uh, – what he got offered to come back to the to the organization. I'm actually still surprised they brought him back to, to tell you the God honest truth. I, I don't know. Based, I mean, he had two titles. He had been on a huge winning streak. I mean, if they didn't go for him, Bellator was going to. And even though the UFC doesn't pay what they used to and they don't have the, the, the shine they have they used to have, nine times out of ten pick the UFC over over Bellator, at least if they are going in if they have an option. The UFC still carries that name value. I'm assuming they paid him well because, like I said, he was a two division champion. He'd been very active, and even though he's not a he's not a name guy, he's familiar with fans. He's familiar with hardcore fans. He's a guy who fills out a division and has potential to co- compete at the higher levels. So I can't imagine he took a pay cut to come in here. I mean, maybe he's not getting top end money, but I can't imagine he took short money to come to the UFC. I mean, if that's what he wants to do, it's his freedom, but. If his management or his his agent allowed that to happen, they should probably be fired. You don't have a double a two division champion come in and take short money to come into face tougher competition. That's that's ridiculous. Hmm. So let's look at some of the news. I want to kind of segue into news portion of the show. So let's see what we got to talk about. Actually, um, what are what are some of the biggest news points that stand out for you? I, I got some ideas for some, but is there anything that happened this week that kind of caught your eye? It's funny to me how the UFC is essentially taking every World Series of Fighting champion and bringing them into the UFC. Oh, I that's mean, true. They did. They did a snatch up Justin too, as well. Yeah, they took the light heavyweight. They took the middleweight. They took the what is it? A bantamweight, and they took the lightweight champion. 
I mean, then they have they have the strawweight former strawweight champion. So it's like uh, four champions in their division all now fight for the UFC. It's it's really crazy to me because I didn't think the UFC would be paying these guys enough to get them to come over. But and I don't know that they are. But I'm assuming these guys didn't take huge pay cuts to come over. Maybe maybe fighting the best guys in the world was worth it to them. But I can't imagine they took like you know ten and twenty and thirty thousand dollar pay cuts just to come in and fight that opposition. I, I just, I can't imagine that's true because of the sponsorship money they would lose out on. I, I'd assume they're getting paid a pretty penny to be in the UFC right now. But that that's the biggest thing to me that another organization's whole, basically their whole championship roster has been taken over by another organization. Like every, their most popular and their best champions all fight for another organization now. The guys they've been promoting for the past two to three years up paying them top money to keep them they all left in the same six months to a year time frame yeah it's been crazy how all those um men and women have have left over the uh last few weeks the last few months i i I should say um for me did you see this i just wrote a piece about it but um scott coker is talking about uh matt hughes and chuck waddell now I do not want to go down this road, but could you imagine a Bellator event with Chuck Liddell and Matt Hughes fighting in the circle cage? I could imagine it because I saw Kimbo Slice and Dada 5000 fight in the circle cage. So I know that Scott Coger is not above doing the freak show to get to get buys. And, and side note, I believe this is the day I die, whether it was Strike Force or whether it was Bellator, by not having Herschel Walker fight Kimbo Slice, rest in peace, Kimbo, by not having him fight Herschel Walker in some um, some stadium in Dallas, he dropped a he he dropped a huge payday. He dropped a huge rating number. He just he missed a huge opportunity to like dominate every sort of sports format with a former cowboy who fights MMA against the toughest street fighter in history. He he dropped the ball that one that was that that was the fight to make that was the fight that was going to sell everything out but uh coker's into this kind of thing and uh, i don't want to see the fights either i think these both guys have had their time and i think both guys should have money to live off of and and it's just i don't see the purpose of it but it would sell people would people would tune in to watch they would they would tune in to watch and that's the most important thing to coker getting eyes on his product and um i guess that they passed the test and the fight's going to happen. They can find some place to make the fight happen because the fight's going to make money. I probably wouldn't want to see it. I can't imagine it being very good, but you know it's going to sell. You know old school MMA fans are going to tune in, and a lot of uh, fans who never saw these guys' fights are going to tune in. So, I mean, if Stefan Bonner and Tito Ortiz can break records, what do you think that Chuck Liddell and Matt Hughes are going to do? Could you imagine that? I I don't want to, but I, I have to at least consider it. I mean, I mean, he's got Chael Sonnen in, who's who's still been fairly active, but he was essentially retired. He brought Tito Ortiz in. He brought Stephen Bonner, who hadn't fought in like what three or four years, maybe. I mean, and and every time he brought these guys in, they did huge numbers. It, it's their biggest ratings, you know, in years. It's the kind of numbers that Viacom wants to see, and you just know that if you bring in Chuck Liddell, Chuck Liddell's name still carries cachet. So if you bring him in, you're going to get a huge rating, whether he gets knocked out in one. I mean, Ken Shamrock demands huge ratings, and he hasn't won a fight in years. So, I mean, 
from the bottom line, I get it as a person and as a guy who knows fighters, knows what they go through and some of the damage done. I'd rather not see it. You know, I've seen Chuck Liddell get knocked out enough. I've seen Matt Hughes get knocked out enough. I don't know that I want to see either one of them get beat up any more than uh, I've already seen it happen. I didn't. I didn't want to see Josh Koscheck get knocked out, and I had to watch that too. So, um, I'd rather not see it. But a lot of people will pay to see it. You're right. A lot of people will pay to see that. Um, what I'm concerned about the most is like the the long term effects that this has on MMA because um, in some sense, you know, we still don't know what these guys are going to look like when they're 50, 60, 70 years old. If they make it that long, man. We see what happens with football players. We see where they stand, but we do not know what these guys are going to look like at that point in in their lives. And these are kind of like the first two people that everyone's going to have their eyes on. Um, We've seen the damage they've taken. You know, these guys, Wanderlei, Fedor, um, the Noguera brothers, what are their lives going to be like when they reach you know, 50, 60, 70 years old. Yeah, it, it makes me wonder. I'm like, what, what are you getting paid where you're still willing to expose yourself to this kind of thing? Like, I would think Chuck Liddell would be so rich, he didn't even need to do this anymore. I would think Matt Hughes, you know, he's worked for the UFC for how many years? He was a company guy. You know, I thought they were taken care of to the point that they don't need this kind of thing. And I don't understand why anybody in their circle payday i get it i understand that they might want to compete i get that too it just seems like the the risk outweigh the reward you know you make a couple million dollars but two years from now you can't speak correctly or you're having huge mood swings because your brain's so rattled you know i mean you never know what can happen with guys who've spent that much time in a combat sport and then haven't competed in a long time and then throw themselves back into it you know you just don't know what can happen and I can't imagine the money in the UFC is so much that it's worth that kind of risk, you know, unless they just want to compete. But even then, it's like, as a friend of that person or coach of that person, how do you let that happen? I mean, the best the best case scenario is they're going to be fighting guys, who fighting, them, fighting each other, or fighting guys who are old like them. So the damage, it minimizes the opportunity for damage to be done. But still, a punch is a punch, a kick is a kick, a takedown is a takedown. And at this age, you, you can't recover from those things as well. And, and a knockout at, at age 48, I have to imagine, is more damaging than a knockout at age 28 or 38. So it, it, it makes me wonder. It makes me wonder. It just makes me wonder if they're really looking for a fighter. Because if they're going to do this to two legends who are who are super rich, what does that mean they're doing to the guys who are struggling, who are just, just trying to put food on their table or make enough money to pay their rent? Like, if they're doing that to two legends, what are they going to do to the rest of the guys? Then they have no concern for, for ordinary guys or journeyman fighters. No concerns. Hmm, it's crazy. So, like, I wonder what these guys are going to be like when they're at that point in their lives and if they're really going to be able to function. Like, I look at professional wrestlers. I look at football players. I look at boxers. You know, it's just some – you don't even really speak about them. You know, that's how bad it is, and I'm just kind of concerned about what is going to happen if this is the standard that is being put into place. Um – Let's see what else, man. We were trying to get Joe on today. He unfortunately he called me twice during the show and I was able, unable to pick up. Um, let's try to get him rescheduled for an, another date. I will send him an email and talk to him later on today. See what we can do. But uh, you know, we're always trying to bring the best interviews and most uh, influential and knowledgeable people in the sport. Um, yeah, Joe's Joe's just for the show. Joe's a great guy. He he's worked with a lot of guys. He's worked he worked with Cody Garbrandt. He's one of the main reasons I picked Cody to be Dominic Cruz. He's worked with a lot of 
he works with a uh, he works with a lot of boxers, world ranked boxers. Uh, he works. He's got a prospect right now. He's he's working with. He's a great fight, great young fighter. He's worked with Sean. He's worked with Sean and Ken Porter before. He's worked with Stipe. He's worked with Jessica I. He's the guy who who's actively coaching boxing right now and having guys who are moving up the ranks and competing for titles and competing for title shots. And, and he's working at a world class level in mixed martial arts. So he he's he's a guy who doesn't get a lot of publicity, but he's a guy who has the who who has a good great depth of knowledge and a, great, a lot of experience in both arts, MMA and boxing. So he's a guy who has a lot to say and has a lot of information to share with, with all of us. So we just wanted to have him on to share some of that with you, the fans. And unfortunately we weren't able to get him on, but we're going to get him on and we're going to have another great discussion as we always do when we have these coaches and trainers come on. Talk with us. Yeah. At some point in time, I want to get Seth Daniels on in the future too, to talk, um, to talk competitive grappling because uh, that's going to be a great conversation there too, as well. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm open to anything. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to learn and you know we have fans that's the main thing about this show we talk about mma but we talk about other aspects we can we can we'll bring people on to discuss cer- certain striking disciplines boxing competitive grappling we're trying to give y'all the biggest bang you have for your buck and show you as much different aspects of the art of mixed martial arts as well as the arts that make it up we're, we're not here just to talk about what picks we got right or what we know or what we don't know we're here to give an entertaining, informative show for people who want to be entertained and informed about mixed, mixed martial arts and martial arts in general, as both of us are martial artists and we have a lot of love for the arts. That's very true. That's very true. And with that in mind, I want to um, go ahead and close the show out. We can, uh, You can always find our work on um, MMARatings.com excuse me, .net, excuse me. You can check us out on Instagram. Check us out on Twitter as well. Be sure to catch our work and Give us a follow. Um, if you ever see anything you ever want to discuss us, follow us on Twitter. Hit us up as we usually tweet about the show while it is on. Um, so, yeah, let's definitely uh, uh, keep this momentum going. We're, we're, we're growing, and you can find us on – where else? Uh, where can they find us? On SoundCloud. SoundCloud, uh, and uh, YouTube. Soon we'll be on iTunes. I don't think we're on iTunes quite yet, but we're on SoundCloud and Stitcher as it stands and YouTube right now. Cool, cool, cool. So with all that said and done, we can go ahead and close the show out and have a great day, man. Yeah, you too. Thank you for listening, as always. No problem. Have a great night.